What's up, guys? Welcome back to the 3 of 7 podcast. I hope you guys are ready for this episode. You know, it's hard to judge episodes, but this was by far one of my favorite, and for me personally, one of the most powerful episodes that we've ever recorded. It's with uh, Caleb and Caitlin McCoy, <coughs> husband and wife. Uh, Caleb is a just an amazing person. Uh, a servant. He's he's he ran the Trail of Tears in 2018, over 800 miles. He is a ultra runner, 100 mile finisher, and that doesn't sound like much in the face of the fact that he ran the Trail of Tears. You know, he's he's an Ironman, uh, and he's training right now to qualify for the Olympic trials in the marathon distance. Caitlin is also an ultra runner uh, and just an amazing woman strong woman and the stories that they tell here on this two-part episode just are going to blow your socks off right now another cool thing about Caleb and Caitlin they are Native Americans and we talk through uh, their heritage we talk through their journey of addiction and recovery uh you know, and the stories, just the testimonies that they give are incredible. And I'm just going to leave it at that. For this episode, the the second episode, we, we dig into Caleb's Trail of Tears run, ultra running, and also their nonprofit called Res Hope. I'll attach the links to their Instagram and social media handles in the show notes of this episode. Yeah, I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. This episode was brought to you by Salty Britches. Hey, just go get you some Salty Britches. I think most of you guys that listen to this podcast are athletes in some way, shape, or form. You either run, bike, hike, uh, do CrossFit, whatever it may be. Salty Britches is the premier, the number one anti-chafing cream on the market I've been using Salty Britches for about a year and a half now. I use it on all my ultra runs. Anytime I'm outside generating heat, sweat, nastiness, right, I put Salty Britches in all the hot spots that would normally chafe. And, yeah, I've had 100% success with this product, and I am 100% satisfied. And I use it on almost a daily basis, which is why I promote it here on 307 Podcast. Go check them out at GetSaltyBritches.com. Again, get you some, support the companies that support this podcast. Follow them at Get Salty Britches on Instagram. Thank you, Salty Britches, for sponsoring this episode. Without further ado, here is the first episode with Caleb and Caitlin McCoy. We got a dang full house tonight. Yeah, we do. We got, uh, <coughs> all right, man, we got a full house. We got the beautiful Brooke. Hey guys. <laughs> we got we've got Caitlin McCoy. What's up? We've got Caleb McCoy. Yes, sir. And we we have some spectators tonight. We got David and Britt Miller, my mother and father in law, that have joined in. They don't have microphones, but they are here. They're getting an exclusive first listen on the podcast tonight. Let me tell everybody what they just did. We told them the podcast is starting. 
do you want to stay here or do you want to leave? But you have to be quiet. My dad gets up and goes and turns the vacuum cleaner on. So that's just, I mean, I don't even know what to say. I think David has like one, like a clinical case of ADHD though. Like it's bad. Yeah, it's bad. So we're taking a risk. Everybody listening to this podcast, we're taking a risk by allowing David Miller to sit in and listen. (laughs) If you hear any strange noises in the background. And he's a few beers deep too, I think. (laughs) He just, he just wore Caleb out in some, uh, some cornhole. Corn yeah. What happened, man? It was a massacre. It wasn't even close. <laughs> it was not even close. Well, you guys were going like you guys were going one for one out there when I was watching. What yeah. happened? There's no excuse. He's just better man to me tonight. <laughs> He's watched it on TV twice. That is true. So. Look, if you watch cornhole on television <laughs> one time, you still pretty cool. If you watch it twice, you're just not cool anymore, man. <laughs> if you don't have anything better to do than watch cornhole on television, sorry, David. <laughs> Dad's sitting over there, too, and he can't speak for himself. He's just got to stay quiet. I love it. This has never happened in my whole life. I know. It's pretty epic, that isn't he it? He can't talk. <laughs> yeah. It is pretty epic. Um. All right. Did you turn off the Wi-Fi, boo? Mm-mm. You must not be close enough. No. Uh, All right, guys. So, hey, everybody listening, welcome back to the 3 to 7 podcast. I told you we got my brother Caleb and my sister Caitlin McCoy here. We got Brooke on the mic. Look, you guys are about to hear some amazing stories. You guys are about to hear some amazing stories of, of, uh, of survival and overcoming. And look, Caleb is a... Ultra marathon runner. What? How many fifties have you done, Caleb? Four. Four fifties. A hundred mile finisher. Yep. Uh, Two time Ironman finisher. Is that right? Seventy point three. Seventy point three. All right. And right now, working on qualifying or, or or aspiring to and training to qualify for the Olympics Olympic and the marathon trials. Olympic trials, trials. marathon yeah. distance. Super strong athlete. Great man of God. Has some amazing stories. We have his beautiful wife, Caitlin, here. Caitlin, what's up? <laughs> I don't. I don't what's have. Your, I don't have your Instagram bio, bio pulled up. Um, you are a hundred k finisher, also an ultra runner. Yeah, I've done um, a lot of <clears throat> smaller distances, thirties and fifty ks. Uh, I don't have it added up. <laughs> I just like to get out there and run. Yeah, um, but you. You pace Caleb at like every one of his races. Yeah, I, I usually my pacer mileage turns into an ultra. <laughs> so because <laughs> I'm, I'm going through the gauntlet and doing a death march, I'm still trying to figure out the the longer distances. And I mean, if I, it wasn't for her out there with me, and I wouldn't I wouldn't have the finishes that I have for sure. Well, not yeah. I mean, we haven't even mentioned that Caleb in in 2018 ran the trail of tears and Caitlin actually paced Caleb for over 400 miles <laughs> on real? the trail of tears. Yeah. 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 So Dang. look, man, if y'all looking for some good folks to listen to, these folks aren't just runners, ultra runners. They are survivors man the the things the stories that they have are unbelievable and we're going to dig into that tonight um 
I'm going to pray real quick, guys. Yeah. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you for bringing us together tonight. I pray that you would bless this conversation that we're about to have, Father, that uh, it would go out and that it would not come back void, Lord. Uh, and we just praise you. We pray that your kingdom would come and that your will is done on this earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Amen. Thank you, guys. You got anything to say, Aunt Brooke? <clears throat> no. All right. I, I want to start off this conversation because uh, another thing about Caleb and Caitlin is they are Native Americans. They That is their heritage. And uh, you guys live on the reservation, right, in Cherokee. Right. sir. Yep. Um, so they, uh, they're the first Native American people that we've yeah. had on the podcast well, we've uh, ever hung out with yeah we've i mean been asking them all sorts of crazy I, questions and i have day. a <laughs> i have a deep interest in the the native american culture and it's always been something that um i've had a, a tremendous amount of respect for i think caleb i told you about that video i watched the other day on youtube of the the marine in his dress uniform uh doing the the uh the war dance uh, alongside of you know his tribe mate or or you know whatever whatever you would call it in the traditional garb and and man it was just so powerful man just to that that man that marine in that dress uniform he knew the songs of his ancestors and he knew the dances of his ancestors and there he was performing that in the uniform of the nation that had defeated his nation you know, hundreds of years ago, and I was like, "Holy!" It was just mind blowing to me. We, I mean, so we've I, I've always had a a really cool interest in y'all's culture, man. Tell us a little bit about the native Native American culture. What it's like living on the reservation. What it's like having that heritage, um, and just being a part of something that's bigger than yourself. Really, you guys are part of something that's so much bigger than just you. I mean, what can you tell us about it? You know? I know I that's think, a hard question because it's just your life, but for yeah. us, it's interesting. You know, I don't know what it's like. Well, to paint with a broad stroke, I guess, I, I would first start out with what our experience has been, what my my experience has been growing up on the boundary, the Kuala boundary. That's why it's not actually called a reservation. We, we say reservation, but it's actually called the Kuala boundary. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, just growing up on, on the boundary, it was really families, Gadugi, right? Community is really important to our people. And the family unit in our culture is, starts with the mother, the matriarch of the family. And so seeing, like knowing that and like seeing how my mom was always, it seems like we all I always look to my mom for strength. Still do. I called her a few minutes ago when I went over to take a shower. And uh but yeah, growing up on, on the boundary, man, it's it was it was a lot of uh it was a lot of seeing a lot of domestic violence and stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, and I went to a school I went to a school um ten miles away from the boundary and it was it was pretty much all white school. So I'm still trying to connect mm -hmm. to my culture. You know, I, mm -hmm. I'm still trying to figure out what that means to be Cherokee because I don't, I don't have a good grasp of that, and that is a huge part of my identity that I'm missing. Mm -hmm. You know, and I know that it's really important. Um, it's really important to me being all that God has created me to be to try to reconnect to that. But 
anyways, yeah, just growing up, man, it was um Sorry, you're gonna have to edit some of this. No, I feel no. Like I'm just like we, we don't we don't edit anything, man. <laughs> this is this is interesting well, to me. And I have specific uh, questions if if you would rather Yeah. I mean, I have Can I? I would like I mean yeah. I definitely want to hear your questions, no, but please. I think that if you really take I mean, just because you grew you went to a different school, that whole kind of thing. Yeah. But I mean, if you was to sit back and just look at our community, look at the people that we hang out with or have conversations with, you know, it's like we're trying to revitalize our language. There's a it, Cherokee is just so enriched with culture and tradition. I mean, everywhere you go, like you could walk around the hospital and you'll have people coming in with their um, their moccasins on and their long, you know, ribbon skirts on just because like that's that's we're proud. We're proud to be able to do those things. And when I think of my community, that's what I think of is like strength, uh, resiliency, um, pride, being very proud of who we are to being different. You know, uh, we're able to to exchange, you know, things that we learn from our ancestors, whether that's through our language, whether that's through our arts and crafts, whether that's through, you know, like, I, I get to go uh, when we have our fair, you know, um, my grandpa will come out on my mom's side and um, he blows, he does blow guns and they have a blow gun competition. And it's so cool because like he's passed that down to my mom and them. My mom's passed it down to us. So we go out there and we compete against each other. But just to see different generations learning that thing, whether it's, you know, wood carving or whatever type of skill that might be. It's just, it's beautiful. It's really awesome to go in there and just sit down and just listen, mm. you know, just yeah. to sit down with an elder and just to hear the way they grew up, you know, going through boarding schools or, you know, just how, how hard it was for them to not be able to speak their own language but now today it's like we're fighting to get that kind of stuff back and and that's why i think between me and caleb like i my heart is for my community and i i want to see my community do better and that's why i feel like we fight so hard for our recovery mm -hmm. because we see the cycle the the generational curses the trauma that thing just happening over and over we want to inspire our people like hey we don't have to keep doing this you know like if we continue to just let drugs and ep the epidemic destroy our community then we're gonna lose all that you know yeah so and, and Preach, caleb, baby caleb <laughs> that I, was good i heard yeah that was really good <laughs> i mean and just the story of the basket tattoo on your arm i mean the, how that represents heritage and you mm -hmm. coming up as a as a you know a, a person of native native american culture and and man it's like i don't have that man no, I'm kinda, i don't I, i'm kind of jealous yeah like, i I'm, mean i'm thinking i'm like wait a minute we were i think we were potato farmers or something in germany and i'm like we don't even know none of none of us get to try to learn more about our heritage and what well, i don't know i am kind of jealous well i heard work out in a potato sack or something <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I heard caleb say something on a speech that i was watching that he did and he said we're not supposed to be here but we are yeah talk about that man how talk about that that you know that resiliency and and that you know of of that culture man because that's a true statement you 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 guys your culture should be extinct yeah so it, but it's not so mm -hmm. that to me speaks something about you 
as a culture. Yeah. You know what? And I think that is the best way that I identify because Caitlin's got all these stories about her grandpa and her mom and, and arts and crafts. And I, I just wasn't around that. And so my experience with, with connecting to who I am as a Cherokee man happened along that journey to the trail of tears and not to get into that too much right now, but like, I, I took pride in that, not pride in, in the, in a bad sense, but pride in, and who I am uh -huh. as as a Cherokee man, as to to know that my ancestors fought tooth and nail to survive along that trail, and even the ones that stayed back in the mountains, um, that's where you know that's why we're Eastern Band. Those those uh, families and and that part of our tribe fought tooth and nail to survive in the mountains and yeah. everything. And so like connecting to that when I first got out of jail and and walking this new path of, of healing and recovery and everything like that really set me on a path to trying to to always make sure that I I was a resilient person and anytime I would come up against a challenge I'm like look you in your blood pumping through your body right now is connected to those people mm -hmm. and so like having that having that identity and learning who I am as a Cherokee man through that has, has helped me and served me and, you know, in so many ways now yep. moving forward. And how many, <clears throat> sorry, y'all, how many generations back? I'm not a history buff. Was the trail of tears. 1838. So how many generations away from y'all would that be? Somebody do quick math. That would be um, like your five? great, great, great. Yeah. Great. Almost like four or five, four or yeah. five. Yeah. I mean, that's not a lot of space. No, like that's not, I, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, that's for sure. And I want to talk about that generational trauma that we talked about on our on our run today. You know, um, you guys as a culture, us as a nation, us as Americans, us as a species, human beings, you know, we are facing a significant problem a, a disease that is addiction and you know it seems to be very very prevalent in the native american culture mm -hmm. uh right now and, and we talked a little bit about that generational trauma what is that what what are you guys talking about when when you speak of that how what how does that where's that coming from I mean, I think I understand it, but I want to hear what you guys had to say. As you guys were saying, that's kind of what you view as the root cause mm -hmm. of this epidemic that you guys especially are facing as a community, mm -hmm. as a yeah. tribe, you and, know? And everyone stay tuned because we're going to talk about what they've gone through personally. You guys have both come through addictions, terrible addictions, and survived. Oh, yeah. We're just getting warmed up, yeah, son. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know the the, and we. I mean, I'm sure we've all heard that the drugs or whatever the substance is. That's the that's the symptom. You know, that's the fruit. Yep. But the root is connected to those generational traumas, the domestic violence, the uh, just bad health. Right. I mean, um, and it's passed down. And and we've heard this. It's passed down from the mother to the child, and so we're genetically predisposed. Uh, to to uh, substance use issues and mental uh, mental health substance use disorder and mental health issues mm -hmm. because of that because of our people have having having to carry that that kind of trauma and everything and I just think that 
I think, like Caitlin said, just trying to do what we've been doing as far as taking care of your mind, body, and spirit. Mm-hmm. You know, um, trying to change the narrative of, of that and trying to understand that on a deeper level. It, is that something that you guys talk about, like the elders and people? Is that something you guys are openly allowed to discuss in your tribe, like past trauma and, and how that's affecting? It's not been something that has been talked about. I feel like, and it's kind of been, it's kind of become normal, like, a lot of the homes that you go into, if you talk to them somewhere along the line in between some kind of generation, there's either domestic violence or sexual abuse, whatever kind of trauma that the person might have experienced. It's just like if you track back far enough, it probably happened a lot earlier, like to the mom and dads or before that. And it just get keeps going, getting passed down. And then when you... It is a lot harder for Native Americans to talk to people about that and open up um, just because we're really not taught to do that. Talk the opposite. And, like, I mean, a lot of Native Americans, if you talk to them, like, they can't even look you in the eye. Like, that's, what is that? It's like a, um, like a culture thing. Really? Yeah, it's really, yeah. yeah, it's really hard for a Native American to, it's not out of, like, disrespect or anything it's just native americans don't it's really hard and like even when you're studying to become a counselor in our area like that you're taught that like don't take offense to it that's just the way that we were raised Mm -hmm. you know and when it comes to like you said they don't really talk about it that's not really in our culture what is i mean you're just supposed to be strong and like you guys i mean you don't talk about your struggles and you're is it almost speak? like a stoic? Yeah. Uh, what do they expect? Well, I mean, I was taught don't. So don't let, my mom always said, "Don't let anybody see you cry." Okay. Really? You don't ever let anybody see you show emotion. And that's common in in your yeah in, in Native American culture. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and another thing too, I want to just give a plug to uh, a couple of our board members on our on our ministry for our organization, um, bringing beauty for ashes into our community. Uh, and Caitlin's been through Beauty Fresh. It's, it's a trauma resilience, trauma yeah. resilience type training. Yeah. And she's went through that where they try to teach you how to walk through that trauma mm-hmm. and share that stuff. And because we're trying, you're taught to just yeah, cover it up. Yeah. Our, our, our um, board members, Frida and Casey, who are, who's are the directors of the, uh, Frida's the director of behavioral health and Casey's the CEO of the hospital. And um, so they're trying to bring that kind of training and exposure to mm-hmm. to our the people. treatment center, yeah, to the treatment center, the recovery center. Well, but I mean, it's it's taking. Um, I mean, just trying to be diligent about ter- changing the narrative and having these tough conversations because, like Caitlin said, we're just taught completely opposite of that. Yeah, and I have to imagine, and and by by no means, you know, do I know exactly uh, all the history and what you guys go through as a community and as a tribe but i have to imagine that generational trauma has got to go all the way back to that trail of tears man it's got to go all the way back yeah without a doubt it it makes to me it makes complete sense Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. the trauma that your ancestors experienced during those times yeah that's going to be passed down from 
from mother and father to children all all and that's what you guys are doing right now is you guys are actually working again to like you said change that narrative and break that cycle mm -hmm. dating back to the 1830s and even before mm -hmm. i mean <laughs> that's pretty it's pretty amazing to think about something that happened that long ago is can still be affecting a community because it just is passed down, passed down, passed down, you know? What is it that Billy Graham had said before about the Native Americans? What, the great um, awakening of the... Of the revival, the, yeah. The great, yeah, the come. great revival in North North America, in America, is going to come from the Native Americans. No kidding, yeah, man. Yeah, he, he prophesied that back in the 60s or 70s. That's wild. How, yeah. and this is not, uh, how prevalent is Christianity in, in the tribe? I wish we had some data points on that. I um, mean, just from just from living there, I mean, what would you say? It doesn't have to be 100% accurate. Um, I would say the majority. Really? Majority of are, are Christian, identify as Christian. Mm -hmm. Well, Native Americans are naturally a spiritual people, aren't yeah. they? More yeah. so than probably most regular americans you still have people that practice like the traditional like stomp dance and and things like that but they would also identify as christian too mm -hmm. they just like to continue to carry the culture and the traditions and very spiritual yeah mm -hmm. and but i mean i know several people that well you lived with walker calhoun who was yeah walker world war ii veteran and he helped bring back the stomp dance to Cherokee and um, was having it at his house up above. The stomp grounds was above his house, and he would, you know, wake up every morning. He had a, a Bible that was written in the syllabary because he was a fluent speaker, and he could read and write it. And uh, But he'd be sitting there reading out of his Bible, and some whenever his wife was alive, used to go to a Baptist church down the road and then was still you know, have the stomp dances. And so, I mean, there it there is a large number. Mm -hmm. that um, That's something that I, I would like to learn more about. You know, I would love to, like I said, I've not been exposed to that yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, you know, and that's another, we, we had that conversation earlier. It's another interesting thing, that dynamic between um, the, uh, I guess the, the heritage and the the religion of the people you know 150 plus years ago and how to keep that and then balance it out with your christian faith you know uh, i think there is a balance there and i think there's value in maintaining the knowledge of you know your your past mm -hmm. even even in terms of religious beliefs um, but it's like who you worship. Who are you worshiping? I think that ultimately is the... Go ahead, Caitlin. Well, I was just going to point out, too, that now there are those those natives that will be... They'll say, you know, we, we're not going to... We're not open to even hearing the the word because yeah. that's the white man. The white man brought that. Really? And that's a generational thing. Mm -hmm. You know, that's being held from since the trail of tears and you know when the settlers came over and so some people and it's understandable too because when you come in and you're trying you're using the bible to oppress people 
Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. you're talking yeah. about following Jesus, but you're going to take everything from us. You're and, you killing know, my you know, family and yeah. moving us out. Cut yeah. my hair, cut my hair off, and you won't let me speak my language, but you're trying to tell me I need to follow Jesus. Yeah. Like, and that's what happened to a lot of your ancestors. They forced Christianity mm-hmm. and made them just get rid of all of their their cultural things. Yeah. What is it? Kill the Indian, save the man? Yeah. Is what the, how, the mindset back then? Yeah. Gosh, no wonder. It's the mantra. They're, they're so hell-bent on saving all of that stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um. All right. Very interesting background on the heritage portion we talked a little bit about the generational trauma and stuff like that i want to talk a little bit about you guys story and how you know how that how you found yourself uh in the positions that you were in maybe what led up to it and some of the stories that you guys have uh, valuable stories from your times and your struggles through the disease of addiction. Yeah. You know? So do you want us to uh, just jump in here and yeah. share how, how we was yeah, exposed? Man. I would say one person go first and then. However you guys yeah. want to do it. Yeah. I mean, I just, you know, we, we've got to hear a lot on the trail today of just some powerful, powerful stories, man. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think, look, man, here's what amazes me about you guys is you guys have gotten to a point that you are able to tell these valuable stories, life lessons, stories of struggle and survival and overcoming and and now thriving. You're able to tell these stories so courageously, man. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, you guys have broken the cycle. The cycle that we were just talking about, you guys have broken it, man. Mm-hmm. Like, that stuff that you guys were saying of how y'all, you guys are told and, and raised and taught to not share your feelings, not share your struggles, not share the things that uh, that have been hard for you. And here you guys show up to my house today, and you're just pouring your hearts out mm-hmm. to Brooke and I in a real way. Yep. In a real, I mean, you guys have broken that, man. You know? Yeah, I think vulnerability is not something that's celebrated a lot. And, I mean, biblically, you know, Paul talks about boasting in his weaknesses. You know, and that, that's like I was sharing with you guys. I think that we're all searching for that because we're all experiencing some brokenness. And that's why we want we share so openly because we're all looking looking towards our neighbor, the people that are in front of us, and the moment that we can say, oh, you too. Yeah. Like I'm not alone in this. Yeah. Well, and as soon as you as soon as you talk about something you're struggling with or a struggle you've had, you open up this door to people who are around you. You know what I mean? And you I mean, it's just okay at that point. It's a safe place and Yeah. Most people aren't comfortable, but it's the way that you guys talk about it, it's different. Like It really is. Earlier you were in the kitchen and you were talking about your sons. And I'm sure we'll, we'll talk more about them, but you were talking about how, you know, you're not a huge part of their lives, but it's because of the things you've did. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know, just like I said, your stature, the tone in your voice, 
it's it's just you don't seem super regretful and full of shame. You're just like this is what happened anymore. Well, you yeah. know, you know what it is yeah. though, is you 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 take so much ownership, Caleb. I haven't heard you blame anything that you've done any 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 issues that you've had any trouble you faced i haven't heard you blame it on anybody or anything you have you have you, that's what's so powerful when you share man is you take so much ownership over the path that you have have had to endure in life that's special man that is special i watched i watched caitlin giving a speech in front of a huge crowd of people pouring her heart out saying it wasn't long ago that I wasn't able to stand here and tell you guys these stories because because I was ashamed of who I am and now look at her now yeah a transformation man that's what I want to hear about bust them <laughs> oh my gosh I mean it fires me up yeah. man yeah the ownership that you take over the things that you've endured, Caleb, is is unbelievable, man. And kick that dog off the couch if it's bothering you. <laughs> yeah, Jada, get down. Jada. Why don't you start with, Caleb, I, I think a good place to start would be, you were saying earlier, and I didn't get to hear much of it, about your childhood and how there was some trauma that started you off, you know, immediately on a bad path. Yeah. Jada, get get down. <laughs> Jada's Jada's loving me over she's here. She's trying to pour, lick. Pour, like, pour her down like off duck. that couch, Caleb. Jada, smells get, like duck butt. She smells get like down. duck breath. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, I think it's important for us to kind of, you know, to go back and to learn from our from our mistakes and past. Because a lot of people don't want to do that. You know, and I want to I go back and dissect why i done what i done why things how things shape me and so like when i was 11 you know or grow okay so let me back up from the very beginning my earliest memory we were living on this little farm right out right outside the boundary and i was about four or five years old and my dad was going fishing he's always bass fishing and he gets up that morning, right at right at daybreak, and uh, he was doing some things he shouldn't have been doing. He's selling a little weed, <laughs> you know, and uh, hard-working man. Though I'm not going to, you know, sit here and just act like that. that's all he done because he, he built a lot of homes, a lot of motels, condos, just a really good carpenter. But he's selling some weed to make some extra money, and so he gets up that morning, and he looks out, and he sees uh, a couple cop cars, and he knew they was going to raid us. And so he writes my mom a note and said, they're coming in today. You know, I put the stuff up, but they'll be here. So my earliest memory, man, is the cops coming in and just absolutely turning our house upside down. And they're slinging, uh, I remember seeing flowers slung all over the, the kitchen and salt and everything. And and uh, my mom was being slammed on the door, on the, uh, the hood of a police car. And oh my gosh. So that, that's like literally my earliest memory. I mean, the fact that that's one of the few memories that I have from my childhood is pretty significant and a telling of, like, how that formed, you know, and how that stuck with me. So that was kind of, there was a lot of chaos, a lot of dysfunction in family, but a lot of love, you know, the best way that they knew how. Um, 
you know, they, uh, my mom and dad fought a lot, uh, a lot of drinking going on in the house. Um, I think, uh, they were both running around on one another. So when I was about 11, I got prescribed a narcotic for my migraines and literally, I mean, it was within a week or two after taking this, like I knew I, it was like an escape for me. Like, it numbed the pain and, and seeing all that going on in my house. And I just, and, and also my sister, I had an old, older sister, Leanne, who passed away last year from an overdose. But seeing her, she's about 17, 18 at the time. She's out running the roads and everything and, and uh, seeing her using drugs. And, and I, I thought that, you know, watching my, watching my dad work, but then also watching my dad sell drugs. And, of course, I'm going to go the one with the flashier, the easy way, you know. And and so that that became what I aspired to do, was drink, party, and sell dope, you know. I thought that was the way to go. Um, And I just continued down that path, you know. I didn't have – I didn't really have anybody to uh, – you know, I always heard do what I say do. Don't do what I do, do what I say do. That's not a very good. <laughs> that's not a very good uh, way to teach. And anyways, you know, I, I continued to 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 party and to use throughout school, and I never had any kind of relationship with the Lord. I didn't know who God was. And growing up, if I always made fun of the Christian kids in school, you know, I always pick on them and laugh at them and just give them a really hard time. And uh, I had. You know, I had an opportunity to play football and at a local college or run track. I had both uh, scholarship offers. And, you know, my, my use and my party and all that got in the way of that, and I lost those things. I got kicked off the basketball team my senior year. And I just continued to spiral down, man, out of, you know, just out of control in the madness. Um, didn't really have any, any sort of direction or anything. You know, I'm using that to house with my dad. You know, we're doing cocaine together and, and drinking and, and uh, you know, he'd always, I guess it was, it was normal for him to say like, you know, as long as you're doing it here, it's okay. It's co-signing off on what I was doing. Hmm. And, uh, man, it just continued, you know, just, I want to stop right there though, because I don't want to go too far into my story and just, because there's, there's a lot that I want to unpack in that next part. But that was like just my formative years. Mm-hmm. Seeing all that, um, the two, I mean, seeing the, the uh, domestic violence going on in the house. I remember one time they, my mom and dad were fighting and uh, my mom picked us up, literally. My, my sister and I took us home that night. The next morning, man, we're getting in a van and we drive across the country to California. Like, who does that with your kids? You know what I'm saying? And she was, I think, you know, she was just running away from the situation. That's, that's how she, that's how she was dealing with it. And that generational trauma, my mom seen my dad, my my grandmother get murdered. Oh my gosh. And she was nine years old. My mom grew up in children's home, you know, and she was molested and all kinds of stuff in the children's homes. Holy crap. And what happened to your grandmother? My my uh, my grandmother's husband, it wasn't my grandpa, it was another man she had married. He came in one night and he was drunk and he sat across the table from her and he just 
my mom was standing right beside her and they was all playing poker and my mom can remember vividly just how he just stood there and he was or sitting there and he just kept just a blank stare and just evil in his eyes and she said you know after five or ten minutes he pulls out a 357 and blows her heart out right in front Mm. of a whole family and everybody gosh almighty bro and he walks outside and he shoots himself in the chest well he Mm. lives he does 30 years in prison down here in atlanta and uh so i mean just like knowing now understanding why my mom done that like the domestic violence she i mean she thought that was the best thing she could do at the moment is get a clean across the country you know and and take us with her but all those things shaped me you know and i didn't know how to deal with my emotions because this is what i'm seeing this becomes my normal like, normal yeah that's my, it you talked about that earlier caleb how that that's so wild man that that was your environment mm-hmm. that that was the norm well and i'm seeing like just hearing this story about you and you kind of going back to like your grandma and what happened to her I see the snowball effect of, you're saying like the trail of tears started with that generation. That was their trauma. Then the next generation was domestic violence. And then that, I mean, before I didn't really understand until that example of how it snowballs. Mm -hmm. And it, like you guys said, how like, and we can get into this later, but my mind now at this point is like, how do you break that cycle? Like, by, by the way, we don't have to wait till later to talk about anything, guys. We can okay. just let this roll. Yeah, what, I would love to hear Caleb kind of get to where you hit rock bottom, if if you feel like sharing that or what your rock bottom was. Um, man, there's a long journey a, there. I hit a lot it? of bottoms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I hit a lot of rock bottoms. Honestly, <laughs> you said you overdosed six times. I did. Right? I did. Jeez. You know the Bible talks about being stiff neck. You know, being proud, I just, uh, I was that guy. I was, like we talk about, don't show emotion. You know, don't don't share what you're going through. And now, under, like, unlearning those things, that's not right, right? I mean, that's exactly what the enemy wants is us to be isolated and carrying all this stuff on, you know, that we're not meant to carry. That's, that's God way, you know, and I didn't know how to get rid of that. I didn't have no, no way to express that. And just seeing all these things, you know, and then having two sons with two different women within the matter of a year, almost to the day apart, you know, and, and just not not knowing what a healthy relationship looked like, not knowing what it meant to to be a good I guess, man of faith and, and a dad, because I didn't see that. My dad loved me the best way that he knew how, but his come from all this dysfunction and everything, and I'm trying to unlearn that. But anyway, it's just like I had so much. You get so far into this, so far into the madness, and you feel so helpless, mm-hmm. right? And you And honestly, I got so down on myself, so shamed about what I was doing, and... Wow. The <laughs> Sorry about that, guys. We do have dogs in the house. <laughs> you can continue, Kayla. Um, you get so far into the madness, yeah, so down on yourself. You, so I mean, like I said, you know, hope is 
the key. I think everybody should be entitled to hope. That's one of the true entitlements of life. I didn't have that anymore. Yeah. I was, you know, so lost and everything, and I didn't know how to express that. And so it just continued, you know, the next thing I know, my son's five years old, and I, I can, you know, you put up these markers when you're using, saying, well, if I don't ever do this, I'm going to be okay. Mm. You know, as long as I don't, I don't turn to that, then I'm all right. <laughs> and my son, I remember uh, he was five years old at the time. I was living in a trailer, with, and I was dating this girl, and uh, she would got some, some needles from, from her grandma's house. And that's when the game changed. As soon as I put that needle in my arm. And I look back and I see God's fingerprints all over my life. You know, I didn't have a way to express it then. But now looking back, you know, I see God just working in my life so many times. But I'm like getting ready to literally put the needle in my arm for the very first time. And becoming the thing that I said I was never going to become. And my son knocks on the door. Oh. And he's like, Dad, Dad, what are you doing in there? Hmm. And I literally reach over and grab a towel and put the, the towel down at the bottom of the door so he can't look under because he's trying to look underneath the door. And I'm like, you know what? I mean, I'd lost my job, didn't really have no meaning in life. You know, I had a little business at the time, a little concrete pumping business. And uh, I lost that, got another job, failed a drug test, lost that job. And so here I am, hopeless, isolated, don't know nothing about nothing you know and and how to be a man or anything and put that needle in my arm and it changed um and it's it just continues you know like i said the only reward that you get for overcoming your last challenge is your next one like I, just life keeps throwing these challenges at you i get the call that my dad is has terminal terminal cancer he's got pancreatic cancer mm-hmm. like literally right after i started shooting up you know i got this on my plate now so I, then i go even harder like, this is the only way I know how to escape. This is the only thing that gives me relief. This is the only thing that numbs the pain. So I just went even harder at that. Moved in with my dad. And I remember thinking I was taking care of him when I was literally bullying my dad. I'm, I'm named after my dad. My dad's the senior. I'm the second. And I was bullying my dad, you know, my hero and everything. You know, I just, I, I love this man. Looked up to him in, in a lot of ways. And I'm taking his pain medication. I'm taking his checks. I'm stealing everything. Um, I give him six months to live. And he continues to fight and fight and fight while I'm, I'm continuing to use and just destroy myself. And I remember he got put in a hospital one time. And this is something I don't share a lot because I'm so this – is, this is really tough to share. But my sister and I went up to see him. And – he had some complications with his chemo and they put him in the hospital. My sister and I are beside my dad and we're trying to figure out how we can get his pain medication out of his IV and into our syringe. And I remember like, honestly, we were, we were trying to figure out how to do this and talking it out. And I finally told, told my sister, I, said, I can't. I got to leave. I leave, go downstairs, sit in the truck. Well, later on, we get a call. Says, your dad can't have any more visitors. I was like, why? He said, because somebody tried to get, there was a hole in his pain medication, in his IV. Somebody was trying to get his pain medicine out. Mm. 
you know, and that, man, that's crazy, but that's what my life had become. I mean, it's so consumed, right, mm -hmm. with the shame, so consumed with the, the physical sickness and dependency. Like you have to, it's like your next breath of air, yep. you know, like you got to have it to breathe. And when all these things started piling up, piling up, piling up, all these just the shameful things I was doing, it got to the point where I was trying to commit suicide by overdose. Um, I remember sitting down in the bathroom after, uh, well, before my dad had passed away, excuse me, I went up to see him, and the nurses were asking him, like, you had six months to live. This You're going on three years. Like, why are you fighting so hard? And I was sitting here watching my dad, who's, I was 185, 190 pounds, strong man. He's about 130 pounds right now, mm. just to shell him of himself. And he's telling the nurses, he's like, I'm fighting to see my son be the man that I know that he can be. And I was, I remember standing by his bed the next day after he said that to the nurses. And he just spoke life into me. And he's like, son, you're going to, you're going to come out of this. You're going to come out of this, and you're going to do some amazing things for our people, for your family. And I honestly, I was looking at him. I'm sweating, and I'm withdrawing, and I'm looking at him. I'm like, man, he's, this is all I'm ever going to be. I'm just going to be a, a junkie. I'm never going to be anything other than that. And the next, the day after that, he was in a hospice room. I'm standing, in the, I'm sitting in the bathroom. I can hear my dad's heart rate monitor. It's beeping. And it flatlines. And I'm a, I got a needle in my arm. I'm in the bathroom connected to his hospice room. Mm. I come out. I give my dad a kiss on the forehead. Tears coming down my face. So I love you. I walk out of the hospital. Call my, call my pill dealer. Hey, come see me. I'm hurting. This is, I, I need something. And it just continued, man. It continued. I, con I continued. Um, that was September 14th, 2000. And, uh, September 19th, 2014, he passed away. Um, I wish I could say that was it. You know, like I said, that was, yeah. that's a lot of bottoms I just described. Yeah. People, None of them were ever. No. but Because the difference is there was never any kind of radical encounter with Jesus. Mm-hmm. I continued to hit these bottoms, hit these bottoms, hit these bottoms. And I, I still, nobody, no, I had never heard the gospel yet. Mm -hmm. Right. And was you, go ahead, Brooke. What was you going to say? No, you finished and then I'll, yeah. Well, I want to get, I want to continue. So go yeah, ahead. No, I just wanted to say that people who, you know, don't understand addiction, which is anybody who's not really an addict, unless you're some kind of counselor, that to me, like those bottoms, can either wake you up or they can fuel your addiction even further. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it sounds like all of yours were just fuel in the fire. It was. Like, you, you, it was just a snowball of, yeah. No, that's all I wanted to well, say. Well, yeah, and to me, you're exactly right. Yeah. I just had that conversation with, with my father-in-law, your dad, just a minute ago while you guys were out. He said, man, I just can't understand what you guys have been through. 
I mean, all three of you guys, you all have your own unique story. And I said, David, we can't understand it. Yeah, I've watched it from the outside, but I cannot understand what y'all have been through. And to me, when you tell these stories, it's a testament to the power behind these drugs. I mean, the the spiritual, I, like I say, I see it as there's a spiritual aspect to it. It's just my own philosophy. But, yeah, I mean, it's just a testament to the power. Uh, it trumps a mother's love. It trumps money. It trumps sex. It trumps everything on earth. That's all it is to me, you know, because that's not Caleb. No. We have Caleb sitting here now. No, you would, you, after spending the day with you and Caitlin, Caitlin was telling me some stories earlier that I'm sure we'll hear in a little bit. I would never, ever take you to for that type of person. It's just not, it, but it wasn't you. It wasn't you. Yeah. yeah. That's the way I see I it. I mean, but. I think, and like I was sharing to you guys earlier, it was, it was, I, and, and I can't, I can't turn away from that. I can't run from that because if it wasn't for all those yous, all those me's, I wouldn't be the me that I am today. Yeah, that's true. That's it, true. God took, God had you, right? He used that. He's using that yeah. right now. Blood of the Lamb, power of her testimony, you know? Amen, brother. And to talk about all these awful, shameful things and to see, like, there is a way out. There's light at the end of the tunnel. You know, to say, like, those bad chapters can have great endings. Mm -hmm. You just got to continue to fight. You got to continue to to reach out and to speak about these things. And I didn't know how to do that yet. And that's that's, I just continued on in in this cycle, in this vicious cycle, in this madness. Man, you just dropped some wisdom on us, son. You just, <laughs> you just dropped some. <laughs> Thank it's you for so that. It's so hard to see that light. It, it is. It's so hard to see that light, especially when you continue to surround yourself with, with the darkness. But you're that light. You're that light. I'm that light. Like, but it's hard, like, just even when you're looking at yourself in the mirror, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like you don't. It's like yeah. you just see a dead person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't value yourself. For sure. You don't value yourself. I think, I mean, you were talking earlier and you were like, at, at a certain point, I didn't care if I died anymore. I was just going to live my life. And if I died running, I was going to die. Like, yeah, it's just, yeah, it didn't matter. And, and, and to talk about the domestic violence and everything. And I would be, I would be, uh, not being, I mean, I wouldn't be honest if I, didn't sit here and say like I turned into that my what I seen at home. I turned into my dad. I I become that person that was inflicting pain emotionally, physically mm-hmm. in these relationships that I was in, and that was just you know continued. I mean that was just part of my story as I continued on in this in this cycle. Um, hurt a lot of people, you know, and, and so after my dad had passed away. The year after that, about a three-month span, I overdosed like three or four times. It's like, it seemed like every other weekend I was in an overdose. And I got out of jail one time. And it was a bond that my mom and I have. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty strong, wouldn't you say? My mom and oh, I. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You guys are really close. So I get out of jail. And I'm, I had been in there for about a month at this time. And you pick up right where you leave off, right? Start using the same amount that you were before you went in. That don't work. No. And so I called my mom. I'd been out of jail for a day. And I was going to go dig ginseng. 
try to make me hustle up a little money so I could go to the dope man. And so um, I call my mom and I tell her that actually she stops me. She's like, are you all right? And I said, yeah, I'm fine. I said, why do you ask? She said, because I had a dream last night that you were calling me in, in my sleep. And that's a, that's a bad sign, right? Yeah. And uh, I was like, no, mom, everything's fine. And she's like, well, you need to call me as soon as you get out of the woods. Let me know everything's all right. I hang up the phone and... I had went and got some, went and got something, shoot up, overdose. The girl that I'm with had to kick me out of the vehicle and start beating on my chest. And uh, I come to, you know, start fighting. And, and anyways, I get arrested and just same thing, same thing, right, right back in the cycle again. Um. Soon after that, my sick, one of my fit, one of my last overdoses, fifth or sixth overdose. Uh. They had to call the paramedics. They threw me in the bathtub, threw cold water on me, barely kept a pulse that way, um, drug me out of the bathroom. Paramedics show up. Police show up. They had to get, administer two Narcan kits. And come to find out the woman that saved my life is now my mother-in-law. You know, and that's just, like I said, you looking back, it's just God's fingerprints all over my story. You were you were dead, weren't dead. you? Flatline. <clears throat> my my lips were blue, my ears, my eyelids, no everything was blue. Yeah. Mm. So my mother in law Nancy, Caitlin's mom, she uh, in the middle of all that, she calls the ER doctor and was like, "He's gone," and they're like, "Keep working on him. If you got another Narcan kit, give it to him and keep working on him." Well, little did I know, you know, I mean, that's here we are now. I'm married to Caitlin, but I mean, just like like that wasn't enough. Even that <laughs> wasn't enough. My mom <laughs> IVC'd me right after that. I just continue. I run from the police that night when they come to pick me up. Um, but when it changed, like I said, all these encounters, nobody was there to give me hope. Right, the truth will set you free. Like I'm love. I was God's beloved, you know, and and through Jesus, right, where you where you find true freedom. I had never heard that message, and so. I get I get arrested this last time, March twenty seventh, two thousand and seventeen, and I'm sitting in. I knew I wasn't getting out. They set my bond because I'd been running from them so many times. They set my bond at like one hundred and twenty thousand dollars, and I didn't have twelve thousand dollars to bond out of jail. So uh, I knew I was gonna be sitting there for a while, cooling my heels. <laughs> and uh, about three weeks in, for the first time in my life, I called out to God. You know. I was humble. I was like, there's got to be more than this. You know, and, and I started thinking about my dad. As I'm like, I'm sitting down in the jail, the county jail, and I've got a sheet of paper out, and Caitlin can tell you I've got the paper still at home where I'm writing out like, God, if you're real, first time I've ever prayed, cried out to God in my life, I'm like, if you're real, show me something. And I went back to the thing that caused the most pain, the most shame, was how I treated my dad and how my dad had to be moved out of the house, how he fought tooth and nail, and I disappointed him. That's the thing that God used in that moment when I'm writing this letter out. I'm like, show me that my dad's still with me somehow. And I lay my pen down. I go upstairs within 30 seconds. This is on a Friday. This pastor who come in for four years straight on Wednesdays, the only time he ever come in on Friday was this day. And... I'm coming down the steps, 
He walks into my pod. It stops me dead in my tracks. It's not so much that he looks like my dad in the face, but just how he's dressed. Same same shoes, same pants, same belt, same kind of shirt. It's tucked in, has his watch to the inside of his wrist, which is unique in itself. That's how my dad wore his. That's how and snipers wear their watches. How who? Snipers. Really? Yeah, so the sun doesn't reflect off the face of the watch. Huh. I didn't know but that. That's very it might unique. be something about your dad that maybe you don't. <laughs> maybe a story there that you never heard, but that is. Your oh, there's a lot of them I never heard. Yeah. Um. So yeah, he, this pastor walks in and and seeing the resemblance and what he was wearing stopped me dead in my tracks. And the icing on the cake and the thing that God used the most, I guess, to for me to connect this whole experience was the, this pastor Terry Taylor. He walks up to me. My dad would always place his left hand over ours, and he'd wink at me and say, I love you, son. Never met this man before in my life. I walk up to him, shakes my hand the same way my dad does, winks at me, says, I love you, son. What? I'm here to share the gospel with you. And I knew right then that it wasn't any, it was Jesus that was shared with me in that moment. You know, and that that changed my life. No matter all the mistakes, all the all the stuff that I was carrying, like that all went to the cross. It's it's hang it's uh, you know it was nailed there. Mm-hmm. It should be left there. Don't carry it anymore, Caleb. It's not yours to carry. That's mm-hmm. basically what he told me that day. And I was like, man, that that's what I've been needing to hear. That despite all of my brokenness, despite all my crap, that God still has a plan and purpose for my life. That simple message, and it's just it radically changed my life I honestly and I go when I share in the, in the schools and everything we, like that moment I had the most exhilarating feeling of freedom that I've ever had and I was locked up like I, I was walking around telling all these guys you know about what had happened to me like y'all got to y'all got to follow this guy Jesus you know like I was all about it <laughs> still am you know and he's got a, he's got some letters like where oh gosh they're ridiculous the first letters he was writing in jail like he's just talking like GD he was a thug, cussing all through it and then after that moment when you start reading his letters and the dates and stuff completely changed like even the way he talked mm-hmm. was just complete complete radical transformation it's pretty <laughs> wild <laughs> it was it was i called my mom i and <laughs> called my mom from the jail i was like mom like i'm different I, it's I, I'm, I'm she was probably thinking yeah right we'll see when yeah, you get out yeah I've heard this before yeah i'll tell you what I, she hadn't man. though i've never talked about having any kind of faith or following any you know having any kind of relationship with god so when i started talking about that she knew something was different yeah and just and she she will even tell you like I've he just stopped her. cussing I've heard her say it. Like, you just you just didn't talk like that anymore he will ask her, he'll be like, did you really think I was going to get out of jail and and be the guy that I was today? And she, she'll get quiet and then start shaking her head or nodding her head. And she'll be like, you know what? She's like, I, I did believe you. And I, I she felt it. She knew somehow that he was going to come out a changed man. Yeah. You, you know, the, to me, first of all, that's one of the most powerful testimonies I've ever heard in my life. It made uh, me cry. It just made me cry. Uh, you know, I haven't cried in months. Yeah, I mean, like, oh, what the crap? 
That needs to be on daggone the Christian Broadcasting Network. Like, they need to make a documentary out of that or something because, for me, the most beautiful thing about it is not the miraculous fact that that pastor came in on a Friday, uh, that he had the same mannerisms and dressed as your father, that he shook your hand the same way. The the My favorite part of the story is the fact that the simple message of Jesus Christ, you explained it so perfectly that all that stuff, man, was yes. nailed to the cross. And, man, that simple message is what transformed your life. Not theology, not, not, uh, not arguments about religion, not any of that stuff. Jesus, the cornerstone of all of this, of, of all of our faith and, and all of our relationship with our Creator, that simple message changed the, the entire direction of your life. It works. Yep. I, I, praise God. It, you don't have yeah. to go to Bible college. It's mm -hmm. how simple is that message that, that Caleb just articulated. He did great, too. You said, what did you say? You said, Caleb, you don't have to carry this anymore. Yeah. It's like, not yours. It's That's yeah. God weight. That is, I mean, you know, I'm sure somebody's going to be listening to this and they're carrying yeah. But they're not built to carry. Yeah. You know, and and well, who doesn't want that trade-off? Mm-hmm. Here, you, you take this, God, and and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you transformation. You know what I'm saying? Like God, that's, that's how it literally, like, it was this huge weight. And I, I, I automatically knew it was a heart change. So did you, going into this, like, as a kid – did you ever have a concept of a creator or a God, or was there any foundation for this spiritual change? No. So, I, you know, my dad used to always, every now and again, because, you know, our name's spelled K-A-L-L-U-P, but my grandmother got that. It was inspired from Caleb from the Bible. She just changed it, make it her own. And so he used to always talk about, he was always proud of being a carpenter. And he'd always say Jesus was a carpenter, you know. And I hear him say stuff every now and again about the good Lord. You know, I didn't ever know what that meant. I, you know, just never was around the the Christian colloquialisms. You know, I know yeah. how to talk and all. You know, going to church and I went maybe honestly maybe three or four times when I was little. My mom would just go with my nanny, who the woman who raised her. Outside of that, I was never. I never heard it. So. When he sat down with you that day in jail and told you the gospel, you knew in your heart it was true. You didn't have to work to believe it. It was just automatically in your mind and in your heart. You were like, this is truth. I know for sure. Or did you have to work at it? Well, I think he had also humbled. And this, and then you answered, Caleb. I think he had also humbled himself to a point to write that letter. Yeah. He reached mm -hmm. out to God, right? And the yeah. Bible says, ask seek it knock. tells you to mm -hmm. ask seek and knock and the door shall be open mm -hmm. and i think that you had taken that initiative but, uh, uh originally but. but he didn't know who god exactly was no. when you were writing yeah. that letter Not, you were no. just desperate yeah i mean but then the gospel for you and the story of jesus clicked yeah like it made sense to you mm -hmm. and you believed it and that from then on out that's been like you haven't struggled with questions and does that make sense I like struggle with questions all the time yeah <laughs> well he's talking about questions i think uh, i mean that's a whole nother podcast yeah. 
God can handle mine. I mean, all throughout the scriptures, you got people like in the Psalms saying, "God, where basically, where the heck are you?" Yeah, you know, like I don't, I don't know where. Why are you? Why are you leaving me here like alone? You know what I'm saying? Like I have questions all the time, but I get in that moment, the way it went down. How can you question that? Mm-mm, yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like the way everything lined up, I couldn't. And, and I think God knew that that's what it was going to take for me. Yeah. It had to be point blank, period. Yep. Very well, clear. And like you were saying, you know, when you, you're searching, when you actually come to the door and you're searching, like that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother level too. When you actually sit back, listen, you know, and trying to listen. Mm-hmm. And because a lot of times I think, I mean, you, you said now looking back, you can see a lot of different places where God's hands was all in it, mm-hmm. but it's yeah. taken now to be able to see that. Whereas, I mean, when we're using and things, we're not listening yeah. for God, you know, we're, yeah. we, you don't even we're just, have to we, be, we were being, re- we got a rebellious heart, a, a heart of stone, you know, like, oh yeah. And then like David talks about, it was good for me to be afflicted. It was good for me to be, I, I had to, I feel like that was my testimony. I had to go through that. Yeah. To be sitting where right here and talking to you guys today, mm-hmm. because I, if it wasn't if it wasn't for you 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 can't have the promise without the process, you know. And Chad, I was talking to Chad about that earlier. You can't have the crown without the cross. We're all going through some sort of suffering, you know. Do we allow that to become to make us hard hearted, or do we ask God for help? And let it change into testimony and power and to set somebody else free. Yeah. And I needed that. Right? I had to go through that. Dude. Yeah, that, dude. That's an... Um, Look, man. And, and yeah. you don't even have to be... You don't even have to be in active addiction or using drugs. I mean, just the, no. the, the way that we live our day-to-day life... That point that you that to get to that point, like you said, Caleb, where you are actually listening, like you said, Caitlin, where you're knocking, seeking, and listening for God's voice to get to that point, that's one of the hardest points to get to as a human being, just by nature of the life that we all live, especially as Americans. Um, especially somebody who's not in a rock bottom place and who's not desperate but wants a relationship with Christ, that's even harder. Because you're not desperate. Like, you have an okay life, and, you know, just something small's missing. I think it would be harder to get to that point where you did want to seek God. You know? Oh, yeah. yeah. How, how did Jesus feed the 5,000, right? The two fish and five loaves. It had to be broken so before he could bless. Yeah. And you got it. it. You, but you can't, you can't bless until it's broken. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think it's the same thing with us. Like, realizing whatever our struggle is. Drugs, whatever, man. I mean, pride, uh, whatever. Fill in the blank. But knowing that I got to boast in my weakness, and I've got to ask for, I got to let God in, so I could be set free. Like that's that's the trick of it. Mm-hmm. Humbling yourself, right? Yeah, dude. I'm so excited to hear Caitlin's story now. <laughs> yeah, let's take a no, little. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> let's take a little break real quick, and then we'll. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna let Caitlin take over the three of seven podcast. This episode of the three of seven podcast is brought to you by Exoskin. Hey man, Exoskin, it's it's fitness apparel, 
right? Socks, shorts, shirts, arm sleeves, beanies. They've got a whole lineup. They can cover you from head to toe. I've been using Exoskin now for probably three years. And look, I use their products ex- exclusively for ultra running, for training, everything that I do. I will only put Exoskin socks on my feet. Uh, I prefer their toe socks. They are hands down the best on the market. Everything that they make is American made. And the technology behind the fabrics that they use is second to none. They've actually designed fabrics that channel moisture and sweat away from your skin that help prevent chafing, helps prevent discomfort. These things are amazing. Everything from head to toe. I love the compression shorts, the short ones. The only good-looking thing on me, really, in my opinion, is my legs. So I always get the short shorts so I can show off my quads a little bit. Um, It's never failed me. So I want you guys to just give Exoskin a try. Look, you get what you pay for. This is a company that stands behind their products because they know that they work and they've been tested out on the battlefield of life. The website is exoskin.us. That's X-O-S-K-I-N dot U-S. Give them a follow on Instagram at exoskin.usa. I'll attach the website, the show notes, and the pro code that they give to us as three of seven podcast listeners. Yeah, we get a discount on all their stuff, so... Exoskin, thanks for always supporting me from day one of my journey as an ultra runner. Thanks for pouring into creating the best products on the market. And thank you for supporting the 3 of 7 podcast since the beginning. <laughs> A dog. Me and Caleb are runners. <laughs> are we back on? Oh, we're back. We're we, back we're on. Off. Yeah. We stay on. <laughs> um... Well, we just got to hear about when Caleb met a Jewish guy named Jesus. <laughs> Come on. You know, and that's that to me is what a, a you don't talk about a testimony. That's a to some a religious word. But you know, it's funny that people can get up and give their testimony what they call their testimony, and never mention the name of Jesus. And it's like, when they're done, you want to just ask them one question. No, no, man, hold on. That was all good stuff you said. But when did you meet Jesus? <laughs> you know what I mean? Because yeah. when you meet him, like you met him, you never forget that day. You never forget that. It's like it's like if somebody walks up to me and asks me, what's my BUDS class number, SEAL training class number, 278? I'll never forget that number. And it's, it's exactly the same when you really meet Jesus in a real way, just like you just told us that story, Caleb. You never forget it. No. And I, and I appreciate you sharing that testimony with us. I know that it will not come back void. Amen. Amen to that, brother. Yeah, I appreciate you letting me. Man, I, I just pray that it's that it goes out and it sets somebody free. You, you know, know, the the wild thing is, uh, it was really interesting when we were in the kitchen earlier, 
And uh, Caleb, you could tell this conversation has been on Caleb's mind. And, you know, he said, well, Chad, you know, what, what do you think about recording here? And do you think we'll have time? <laughs> I'm like, Caleb, just relax, bro. It's going to be exactly what it needs to be. And by gosh, it's exactly what it needs to be. And praise God for it. And uh, we give him all the glory. And I want to hear from Caitlin now because Caitlin has got some wisdom of her own. Mm -hmm. A tremendous amount. I didn't get to spend as much time with you on the run today. You're a little as bit a, faster. Than yeah, as I did with Caleb. <laughs> Me and Caleb are runners. Brooke and uh, Caitlin Easy. are are also Easy. runners. Okay, but they were having such meaningful conversation that uh, they were just out of breath. Yeah, yep. yeah, they were using all their breath to talk. <laughs> <laughs> Screw y'all. In my defense, I've not ran since. No, don't, don't, it, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't make in, excuses. In her defense, we're not freaking skinny little sticks that run fast. We're strong women. We got we got to carry a lot You're of muscle. Crossfitters. Yeah, we got to carry a lot of muscle around. <laughs> it's a lot easier for you to carry these twig legs up that mountain. I got to carry these thunder That thighs. is true. You, well, it goes back to what we talked about earlier. You guys are the matriarchs, man. Yeah. I mean, me and Caleb are the product <laughs> of strong women. We are the product of the the uh, the the mentorship and the raising by strong women like you guys. So you're right, biscuit. I can't argue with that. Yep. Shout out, mom. I believe that. Shout out, mom. Shout out, mom. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of five a.m. wake ups when I set the tone. And Kayla knows if I'm up there, if I'm getting up, having yeah. to go out and work and do what. There's no going excuse to go anymore. work out after work. He gets his butt up and goes out and trains. So yeah, I can't lay in the bed now because she's getting up, going to work five a.m. and oh man, I, that that just takes all the uh, excuses off the table for me. I'm like, gosh, she's up there working and going to work out after work. I better get my butt up. But uh, yeah, go ahead, baby. Yeah, start. Can you start with kind of like where he started with your childhood and just <clears throat> yeah. Um, so I seen my my childhood. I mean, I I I grew up straight, Rez. <laughs> we uh, didn't have a whole lot of money. I mean, we weren't like poverty or anything like that. But um, I know it was. We had a lot of hand me down clothes, and uh, you know, it, I seen a lot of I seen a lot when I was little. I can recall times coming into the living room, and I mean, I was probably four or five years old and I remember like my mom and dad and everybody sitting around in the living room my aunts and uncles and everybody be smoking weed and like I can recall the smell so I knew that it was weed but I'd come running through say something to my mom or something and then go running back outside and start playing again and it, it was just normal and I seen it all the time uh growing up um a lot of domestic violence like um arguments things like that a lot of yelling in front of us arguing in front of us um that whole kind of thing uh, and i i didn't realize it until now as i've come into recovery how much my mom and dad's divorce played a huge role in a lot of different things like my mom 
we kind of, our relationship kind of went sideways. I held a lot of resentments towards her, um, especially like when she would start talking about my dad because I was a big daddy's girl and uh, I didn't like it. I didn't want anybody else in my family. You know, I become so used to our unit. And so whenever that became broken, I didn't like it, but I didn't know how to talk about it. You know, like my mom, she tried to take us to therapy, but when I'd get in there, I'd look at that therapist and I'd be like, I don't have nothing to say to you or, you know, I, I don't know who you are. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to talk to you about what's going on. And then when I wouldn't open up to my mom, she, I would just tell her like, all right, she'd be like, I want you to know this ain't your fault. But I didn't understand at the time, like, well, why is this happening to us? Because you look at, I mean, number one, there are a lot of broken up families on the reservation and number two I didn't want it to happen to my family mm -hmm. you know how old were you then Caitlin um by that time I was uh, I think I was either nine or ten years old uh, I was ten because we moved out of my dad's when I was 12 he kept us for a couple years because my mom she was still going to school and didn't really have a really her own place for us to come to and that kind of thing like we would just go and see her on weekends and and things like that my dad he had the house the vehicle the stable job you know so at that time it was better for us to be with him well when we moved to my mom's um I was really uh I hold a lot of trauma to that. Like, that's one of the vivid memories. Like, that crushed me. Um, for whatever reason, I've had a really close relationship with my dad. And, you know, being taken from the house that we grew up in, it was just really hard for me. And I remember sitting at the bottom of the toilet, locked myself in the bathroom, and just squalled for hours all night. And I was only 12 years old. Um, growing up, I've always been really smart. Um, when I was in the fourth grade, like every year I would get, uh, what's called the, um, the chief's award where the top students out of each grade would get these awards. But then there was like another top student that was best all around. So since the fourth grade until I graduated, I got best all around every single year. And then valedictorian, right? Yeah, when I, I graduated. Right? Yeah, valedictorian. Okay. Um, and that actually started, that goal came about when I was in the fourth grade. <laughs> I'd seen my cousin graduate, and I, I'd seen the valedictorian give their speech. And I was like, man, you know, I, I want to do that because I seen, like, everybody in the crowd. They were laughing, started crying, were really moved by what this person was saying. And so I told my dad, I was like, dad, I'm going to be that person. Uh, when well, I graduate, I'm going to be that person to get up there and do that. Knowing, like, how you have struggled with acceptance, do you think that that was a way that you figured you might get acceptance? Absolutely. Like, and that's I want to be that so I could get the acceptance and love that I'm missing. That was one of, you know, I was, yeah, absolutely. Um, that was one of the things that I always struggled with, you know. Um, coming from a broken-up family, not understanding why and then just um I had really high standards for myself and I felt like sometimes I project them on myself on my own and then other times 
you know, my my parents, they really pushed me. They were like, you know, they wanted me to succeed and they wanted to see me do well. And so I set really high expectations for myself. And, and absolutely, yeah, I wanted the crowd to like me. I wanted the eyes to be on me. I was very outgoing. I was very like, I had very strong leadership skills. Mm-hmm. And um, so... It was funny you were talking about the ropes course thing (laughs) because it totally made me think back to the first time I ever tried any kind of substance, which was weed. We went, I was 12 years old. We went on a leadership camp um, because that next summer we were going to do a summer camp for these um, kids from out of state. They were going to come to Cherokee and we were going to do our own ropes course for them and do like a week long camp out thing and they wanted to have peer leaders so they sent us out to new mexico to do their ropes course and while we were out there one night everybody decided to sneak out of the tents and sneak away from our counselors and go out and hang out so i was like yeah i'm coming along and got out there and somebody pulled out a bag of weed and I think a lot of families have grown up in Cherokee seeing that, you know, and and that kind of thing is getting passed down from generation to generation. Mm-hmm. And so whenever I seen everybody else smoking weed, I was like, oh, I'm not about to be the only weird one left out, you know. So I gave in to peer pressure. Um, that's always been my uh, my shortcoming has been struggling to find acceptance. Mm-hmm. So started smoking weed um i felt like i fit in i felt like i was cool that turned into using alcohol let let me let me ask you real quick your your perspective on this is a hot topic on marijuana (laughs) because it's part of your story And, and and you know there's so many people out there now that that advocate for whatever whether it's legalization of marijuana or just that it's harmless or you know that that it. You know, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, what is what is your perspective, Caitlin, on that drug in particular? Just because it's part of your story, I feel like you should have some perspective on it, and probably a better one than mine. So, so I will say that for me and my own experience, that was but the first drug that I chose, and it very well could have been because. Like Caleb had mentioned in his story, was like, as long as I'm just doing this, then I'm okay. As long as, or as long as I'm not doing that over there, then I'm okay. Mm-hmm. As long as I'm just smoking weed, then I'm fine. And then that turned in. But I mean, when you start doing those things, it's inevitable you're gonna be in different crowds. Like I wasn't hanging out in crowds that were doing Bible studies. You know, yeah. we were sitting around <laughs> smoking weed, which turned into drinking and partying and eventually that turns into hanging out with older crowds and that turned into somebody brought some pills and cocaine and mushrooms and a lot of ecstasy like i was young trying Mm -hmm. whatever because i seen everybody else doing it um now can i say that if if it wasn't weed say somebody had alcohol maybe somebody had a pill i don't know you know, I mean, it just so happened that was the drug that was there. I I probably would have drank if that was what was there. Or I probably, I just, 
for me, the reasoning why I was doing that, that's the more powerful piece for me. Like I've had to go back and ask myself, like, why were you doing that? Because I was trying to find acceptance somewhere. Totally. Makes you know? sense. Yeah. Um, especially at that age. I mean, that's a really volatile age where that's all, I mean, that's all I wanted to do at that age t- frame is fit as, in. Yeah. Or, yeah. you know, if you're trying to rebel, maybe like, I don't know <laughs> what if I, I don't know, maybe if, I wanted to uh, to do something I wasn't supposed to be doing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think it's kind of the whole teenage formative years, right? Rebelling, rebelling a lot of times. Not everybody, but I think a majority of us have all yeah. struggled with yeah. that yeah. at yeah. some point. So the age, so how old were you? Like you just kind of gave us the rundown of how it kind of morphed into hard drugs. Once you started dabbling in like heroin and cocaine how old were you at that point well i was actually i was 14 and 15 when wow. i was doing cocaine and <laughs> see okay. i about did it again i about said but not heroin <laughs> trying to make it seem like i was just, just doing, doing cocaine, cocaine. <laughs> just smoking crack <laughs> no big deal yeah that's really interesting when I was 15 how that- years old that's such a common thread, it though. Is. Yeah. something that you um you have to be to like con- consistently, constantly on guard against that. Yeah, it's it's cool. I how did it I, earlier. Yeah, when we were talking about meth, yeah. I did it earlier. Yeah, I was like, ooh, you did meth. Yeah, God. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, that is a very very interesting perspective of how aware of that you guys are, and that's a very healthy thing because. Yeah, that's the way we should all be thinking. It's not, we should be thinking that way with all sin. Mm-hmm. It yeah. basically is what I'm talking about. We should not be saying, oh, dang, well, I'm good as long as I'm not committing adultery. Oh, I'm good as long as I'm not committing murder. You, right. you know, we sh- it's really, really a great mindset shift that you guys have found through the recovery process. Yeah. It's awesome, man. And, and even I'll take that. Just for a second, I want to take that just a little bit further about the, the sin conversation. We can, because sin is, I've heard it as brokenness. Anything that disturbs the shalom that God has intended for the world. So the shalom, the peace that he has intended for the world between myself, me and myself, me and my neighbor, me and creation, and me and God Anything that disturbs that can be considered sin, right? Like being holier than thou and calling people out is sin, mm-hmm. you know? But we always think about like the drugs and, you know, the pride yeah. and the adult, like all those other things can be considered that as well. Oh, yeah. Like, and no, we, I love that, man. <laughs> we love to look at other people's sins as like, ooh, you know, whoa, you, you know, because it's not, yeah. it's like we've never experienced that or felt the urge to, oh, you cheated on your wife. Oh, Caleb, you did meth. Well, we like doing other sorts of drugs. We like yeah. to other people. Like, yeah. well, you—that's not me. I'm in. You're out. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm. I've got this right. You don't. You know, like I think it's like a human nature thing that we all gravitate towards. But like, if we could think like you guys are trying to think with your drug use, like Chad's saying. Oh, Caitlin, you just—you've yeah. literally yeah. just helped me tremendously yeah. with that simple principle. Uh, I mean, say it's simple. It's not a simple principle. It's not something that most your average everyday people are. It's not a mindset that they're thinking with. 
you just impacted me tremendously by correcting yourself with with that that sin, that single statement. You know. Yeah, it's really uh, easy to do that, and especially when you're when you're doing it. <laughs> and you know, it kind of gives you the excuse to keep doing what you're doing it's just yeah, yeah. a justification well, putting that, like, like we were saying earlier and i was saying in my story like how we put those markers up mm-hmm. like long as i don't do cross that boundary then i'm okay i yeah. can continue doing what i'm doing yeah but the moment that you put the marker up you're not okay <laughs> like right, right you know what i'm saying like that's that's an indicator like hey now let's look at some things mm-hmm. before you jump into the hard drugs i want to kind of redirect the conversation about like the impact that the relationship that you were in had on you. <laughs> I know. I don't never talk about Romantic that when I'm selling yeah. or when I'm, when I'm talking yeah. or sharing my testimony. Um, so I started, I met this guy. I had just turned 16. He was 20, 23. And, uh, so the a lot older crowd, which I had mentioned, you know, like as each drug progressed or as the partying progressed, like I started hanging out with older people. I started working when I was 14 years old. And even then, you know, I was going out after work with coworkers, g- drinking and partying. And so and, and they were a lot older than me, you know. And uh, anyways, I met this guy and. First, first real boyfriend I ever had, and he was doing drugs. He was like, I mean, really introduced me to what a Roxy was, mm-hmm. or what's a real term for it? Roxy set, yeah, it's, yeah, rock, yeah. And offered for me to try. So of course, I, you know, I done it. I mean, well, it's just a perfect storm. Like, well, here's yeah. this guy. He likes me. He's older, and I was always struggling <laughs> with acceptance. You know, I always felt I was a bigger girl when I was in elementary school. Um, <laughs> that what there was a period of time I wore like a short boy cut, and <laughs> I was <laughs> I, I I struggled with um with you know image self esteem um, identity self esteem mm-hmm. I. I I really struggled and so like when I there's this guy actually paying attention to me um I fell hard for him and we started doing harder drugs together I I got by the time I was 15 or no 16 sorry no it had to be 15 then because I was doing pills when I was 15 years old and um it just kept progressing further and further into a something harder for me to escape from but I would tell myself you know as long as I can keep my grades up then I'm okay as long as I don't let my you know if I I'm playing sports as long as I'm doing what I need to be doing fooling my teachers fooling my parents fooling well by that time my dad um he was going through a lot of stuff his own stuff with divorce the divorce and he was the bachelor you know had his own bachelor's pad and um like I said my mom our relationship got really strained I had a lot of resentment towards her and one fight it took and um I had gotten in trouble I'd got caught for um I don't even remember what it was now but it had something to do with substance use and uh 
I heard her talking about it to her boyfriend at the time. And I got so mad. I was like, that's not my dad. What are you doing sharing information? Talk or like, why are you talking about me to him? And it wasn't like a, at the time, it, like I understand it now. It wasn't a bad thing. She wasn't saying anything bad about me. She was saying the truth. Like mm-hmm. what <laughs> happened? And she was speaking to her partner about it, which she should be able to do. That's what you do with your spouse. <laughs> but at the time, I, as a 16-year-old hot-headed redhead, <laughs> um, I ended up leaving and moving to my dad's. And from there, he was smoking weed. And he's kind of like Caleb's dad, you know. He was like, as long as you're doing it here and I know that you're you're not out running the roads, you're here, then it. So that method do doesn't work for, for, not parents, at all. for, for parents no, out there. No, <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> FYI, yeah, FYI, we have spoke about it. And when we have a child, that whole concept will not be. Brought no. into our home. Our Boy. kids will not be y'all just drinking. put that y'all just put that parenting style to rest, son. <laughs> Thank goodness. It does not work, guys. Don't do it. Yeah. If you're doing it, please stop. Yeah, right. You're not helping the situation. Um so you were dating the boy. The man. I'm, I'm, I'm hung the man. The man. <laughs> I'm hung on this because that's my first drug I ever well, Roxy's was what I got hooked on. That was my first like Hardcore. So I was waiting, like, to see what you were gonna say about the first time you tried that. Oh, I loved it. I the way that it made me feel. Actually, I remember we were watching a basketball game, and I could just the feeling that it gave me. I just felt like I was a completely different person. And another thing with pills and drugs is it. At the time, it's not now. I have a completely different way of thinking. But at the time, I felt like I come out of my shell more like I was likable more you know I was Fault more sense of easy going and people wanted to be around me like I I was the clown you know I had everybody laughing and and things like that but when I didn't when I wasn't high I was more introverted you know and um so yeah I I fell in love with it and where I had where I was working that's where all my money went towards you know it was I had I was working he was not <laughs> and that was the way it was throughout the whole entire relationship he never worked um well so you graduated valedictorian I did graduate valedictorian um I did end up quit I did not play basketball my senior year and I, I love basketball but and I quit because of drugs I didn't want to have to keep trying to pass a drug test so I'd be drinking yellow root and all kinds of stuff trying to (laughs) if i knew we had a drug test coming up trying to get on the team and i just got tired of it it's too exhausting so i I share that because it just goes to show how the drugs just start snatching everything up under your feet that's exactly what just came to my mind yeah it's like that soon in your life that soon and in that sickness it was already taking so much from you well and perspective do you i don't know if you remember but i remember those we called them 30s yeah or roxy's yeah when when i was here like kind of just running the roads as y'all are saying or calling it they were 20 dollars a piece yeah 20 to 25 dollars a piece and i don't know how many y'all got up to a day i was doing up to eight a day at one point and you're talking what is that 160 dollars a day yeah what is i mean like perspective 
Like you are, you know, as it's a 16 year old, you're, I don't know. It's just crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I went for the waitressing jobs. I didn't want a job if I wasn't getting cash that day. You yep. know, like you start forming these, this mindset of manipulative ways of how you're going to be able to get your next high. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I wasn't trying to get a paycheck in two weeks. Yep. Like I need something immediate. I need cash in my hand today. Because I wasn't just feeding my habit. I was feeding that person's habit too. And um, so, yeah, when I, I did graduate, wild enough um valedictorian and i gave that speech and i was so we'd already gotten our small per cap and i was so high like i'd went and got a script of roxy's the day before like a whole prescription and i smoked some weed right before we were going down and i can't even i can't even tell you what i talked about and i you know like that's so bittersweet for me i mean i'm i'm very proud of accomplishing that because it was a goal that i set but at the same time <laughs> it's it, hard it's hard to be proud and because there's like shame around it too. yeah you know? i mean i was i can't remember it yeah you know and i i wonder <laughs> i wonder sometimes what how that speech would have been different if i hadn't yeah, still in moments, still in those experiences. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so then after that, uh, and I mean, I'm wearing a Tar Heel shirt, North Carolina. Like that's my that was my dream school was to go to Chapel Hill. And um, I remember I told my mom one time I was like, oh, I think I want to just I want to become a paramedic like you. And she told me I remember plain as day I was laying in the floor in the living room and she told me she was like no she said don't become a paramedic she said you're too smart for that you need to become a doctor and so that's what I told myself from that moment on I was like no I gotta work harder I gotta become a doctor and I'm gonna go to Chapel Hill but then where I was addicted to pills when I started applying to schools I ended up I decided to just go to Western, which is um, 20 minutes away. Yeah, just 20 minutes away. So I could commute back and forth. I knew if I went to Chapel Hill that I was not going to be able to be around drugs. And I let, again, I let the drugs come in and make the decision for me. And I let that slip away from me. And uh, what a powerful thief. Like, this is just. Comes in to kill, steal, and destroy. Come on, man. Mm -hmm. This is just over the top. I mean, to think that something is that powerful. A substance. that A substance is that powerful that it can literally steal everything from you, up to and including your very life's breath. Yeah. there's It's very powerful, and it's very sneaky and conniving because Mm. you can feel like, (coughs) you can feel like at times that you have things under control. (laughs) <laughs> and then you're so far out of control that you're like, how the heck did I even get here? You yeah. know, um, I quit. I didn't even finish my, I finished my first uh, month of my first semester and I dropped out because I was so pill sick. I was going through withdrawal so bad that my skin felt like it was crawling off of me. My legs would just ache. I would have these body aches. And I couldn't go to school like that. I would rather lay out of school to try to conjure up a way for me to get a pill or wait until I had to go into work so I'd have enough money to get a pill. Yep. 
And eventually, um, I got my big money. And that was not... Well, you got to give some context now that you're talking about big money. <laughs> yeah. What was so, do you remember me talking about the per caps earlier? Yeah, yeah. How um, we have the casino. So, every tribal member gets a... Um, ABCI. Yeah. Not every tribe. No, yeah. Just the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. Every enrolled member, they get a... Increment, increment per capita. That. Yeah. Twice a, uh, twice a month. Twice a year. Yeah, sorry. December first, June first, and um, so you can't get that until either until you turn eighteen and you graduate, or until you turn twenty one, and like he said, it builds up into a trust fund Mm. up until you're eighteen. So it's a big chunk up front. What are we talking? Like, what what did you have waiting on? I had thirty three thousand when I graduated. Thirty three thousand. Yeah, that's a lot of money when you're that age. Eighteen. I had seventy eight thousand dollars. Wow. Up until up until like two years ago, three years ago, they were getting one hundred and twenty something thousand. Dude. One time. Boom. In a one like I I I don't know at that age. Yeah. How many people died? I I can't wait to hear what what you did with it. Oh, I mean, like. I, 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 your story is well, you about a truck, and then I traded the that wor- truck for some pills. That's about all yeah. I did with that money, other than doing drugs, partying, paying for everything, living this big lie, glamorous <laughs> life at the time that I thought I was living. Everybody got a good Christmas that year. People I didn't even <laughs> really know. Would, yeah. <laughs> Boy, they got to change that, son. They well, so they, they did, are. but now I mean, it's still they still get a chunk. Now they got to go it's through a like um a budgeting class, budgeting class, and they get like uh, increments dif- start, at yeah. different ages. Yeah, yeah. So that got really out of control. I was like traveling back and forth to Atlanta, South Carolina, different places, Tennessee. Like you were talking about doctor shopping. Mm-hmm. Like I was covering people's scripts, taking them doctor shopping. There's a time I went over to atlanta then cut all the way across to tennessee just so they could get both their scripts in one day i mean so you were you were in the dealing world at this point yeah i mean you were yeah and you were no longer just using you were dealing to to cover your habit and i'm glad you said that because it's a good segue because this is when her criminal started getting locked up and racking up charges so what what age are we at now like you're, you started eighteen. Well, eighteen going through nineteen. Okay, and uh, um, it's closer to nineteen, um, because it took me a little bit longer to get mine than everybody else. But um, so when that money ran out, because like I said, I I was with a guy who didn't work, and um, so the money started going quicker and quicker, you know, and it always. You as an as an addict or as somebody who uses, you always tell yourself, "Well, I'm gonna buy more and I'm gonna be able to double my money," but it mm. never works like that. <laughs> never happens. And uh, when I ran out of money, working was not. By that time, my tolerance was so high. Um, just I couldn't afford my habit anymore yeah. by just working a waitressing job or doing, you know, whatever that looked like. So eventually I just quit my job and, um, I started, you had to deal to fund your habit. 
Yeah. And that's all it was, was selling drugs. And then eventually I started getting caught for that. Um, one, I got arrested one time. My mom, she um, had a, a lace and like a beads and leather shop. And um, her and my grandma, my grandma used, used to be, a she's a retired magistrate. But they were sitting over at her shop and across the road, they see blue lights. And so my mom, like, or my grandma seen it. And she's like, I wonder what's going on over there. So my mom, she said she just felt it. She was, my grandma was like, where are you going? And she said, I feel like that's Katie. That's what they call me. So she comes out the door and is coming across the parking lot. And I'm getting slammed onto the ground. And there are pills flying everywhere. Because I'm, my mind, my right thinking was, I got to eat these pills. Mm. and kill yourself and yeah, yeah it's like i i don't care what happened like i i'm can't let them pin me for these pills so i try to eat these pills and they like body slam me and they're like choking me and pills will come back up out of your throat when like, <laughs> i'll just tell you they come back out the other <laughs> way and i just could feel them coming back out and it was just it was nuts and here's my mom concerned about her daughter and like the cop is screaming at her like stop where you're at and has his like has his gun pointed at her and he's like i said stop and i was like dude leave my mom alone but i finally had to tell my mom i was like stop moving like just he's being serious just stop i'm going to jail <laughs> oh man um that's i really haven't thought back on that like that that's embarrassing you know for for your parents to have to see you go through that um did a lot of hurtful things to my family stole from them um, so if I was, didn't have drugs to sell, I was stealing from stores. Um, God, I started cycling in and out, in and out of the jails. And, uh, eventually I got turned on to, or I, I was like, Caleb, I told myself, as long as I'm not shooting up, yeah, you know, I'm still just going to run this thing out until, yeah. yeah, I'm okay. As long as I'm not shooting up, but and then there's a pill shortage. And you're withdrawing. Yeah. And you can't get pills. And they're but someone has. And has a needle. And they're yeah. like, hey, look, just hit you faster. You don't Cheaper. have to. Yep. You don't have to do as many. And I got turned on. And I, it got really out of control then. it did, I didn't care who you were. I was going to try to manipulate you in some kind of way. And then I got introduced to meth. And that really spiraled out i figured out that i could make a lot of money really quick for really cheap stuff and um i eventually went to prison for selling meth um it's so it's so wild i you know here i was voted most likely to succeed yeah as a senior in high school graduated valedictorian to now sitting on a prison bus surrounded by other women headed out to raleigh to go to processing to go to prison this hmm. stuff doesn't discriminate no oh no it doesn't not at all because that person still was still in you at mm -hmm. that point it's mm -hmm. just the evil's too strong you know she didn't yeah. have the light yet no. she didn't have the light yet yeah well and was this today you told me a story and you don't have to tell it all through and through, but it was crazy about your car accident that you had when you were using. Was this between all this? Before she went to prison. That was right before I went to prison. Um, well, 
Since she brought it up, I stole somebody's car. Um, I'll just tell a short version of it. Um, my right thinking was when they showed up to retrieve this car, <laughs> I instead of just giving the car back, which <laughs> I'm just like, what is wrong with you, Caitlin? Like, I jumped in the car, took off down the road, it's January 26th. And it had just snowed. That's my birthday, birthday, by the way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's my my anniversary date for my car. (laughs) Um, They're chasing after me down the road, and I hit black ice. And when I hit this black ice, it slings me straight into a tree. And I broke both bones in my lower leg. They're protruding out of my... um, my leg, I think it's called a compound break. Compound, compound fracture, fracture. Or, yeah. yeah. And um, fracture my hip, hip and my back. lower back. And the same pe- – okay, so when they show up, I'm begging the guy whose car I stole, please don't call the cops. And he's like, you're nuts. Of course I'm calling the cops. And I'm thinking, like, I'm going to go to jail. I stole this guy's car. I've got a bunch of drugs on me. Like, I've got to get out of here. So the same person who set me up and brought him to me, I was like, I'll give you this dope to get me out of this, away from this scene. So she drags me. Dad, I'm, when I'm telling you, like, <laughs> I'm You ever holding. seen the Anderson Silva video where he got his uh, oh, leg snapped? I've seen stick. a compound fracture before. It's nasty. <laughs> you yeah. said you said the way you described it to me is you were holding your leg together. Yeah, like yeah. my I had to, my leg from here down was bent, was mm. hanging there. I had to pick it back up mm. and hold it together. Mm. And she drug me to her van, and we left. And I told her, I was to the, like, "Where'd you go to the dope I house?" Went, well, I went back to where the room we were staying at to to tell all my people because I'm so loyal to them. Like, hey, we got to get out of here. He's going to call the cops and they might show up here because that's where we f- the, it first started, you know? And I was like, y'all got to get out of here because... And I look how that loyalty <laughs> about killed you, you know? Like, Nobody came and seen me in the hospital. I know that. Right? <laughs> Except for some people, my family and some people that were in treatment. Um, so, yeah, I... I ended up going to a hospital 30 minutes away because I did not want to go to the one in town. <laughs> I tried to get them to bring me to Georgia <laughs> wow. to go to all. That was my, that was my thinking. That's right. I didn't want to go to jail that bad because not only did I not want to go to jail because jail sucks. Like I knew, like I ain't going to have no drugs in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I would have to suffer the consequences for the things that yeah. I was doing. I knew what I was doing was insane. And so... Anyways, they done emergency surgery, and so now I have a metal rod that goes from the bottom of my knee down to my ankle. I have two screws in my ankle and wow. a screw in my knee. And um, so, yeah, it's pretty remarkable. <laughs> the um, He was in a wheelchair when you got sentenced to prison. Yeah. Right? I, I kind of wonder if he might have been a little lenient on me <laughs> because, because I was in, in a wheelchair. <laughs> Yeah, whenever the judge was sentencing me. What was but, you? What was uh, so? I mean, we're you're telling all these stories, and I never get to ask you what when you when that gavel hit the the wood. You know, like what was what do you think? I freaked out. How, what'd you get? Question. Yeah, what what did they sentence you to? Um, I had nine to eighteen months. Wow. And but I I'd already done three of them. So when I was waiting and like over time it had accumulated up. So 
I actually spent six months in prison because I already had the three accumulated. Um, Time served. Yeah. And uh, no, I was scared, Caleb. That was probably the, I walked around trying to act like I was this, carry this demeanor, like I, I, of a drug dealer. Like I was Mm -hmm. bad to the bone or something. And, but the minute that I realized like, you're going to prison and I looked down the shape that I was in. I was questioning the law. I was like, what am I doing? But at the same time I was like, but who cares? You know, I was like, honestly, like I said, when I jumped in that car, I'd done a lot of other different really like I'd done a lot of different things where I should have lost my life. Yeah. And when in the moment doing them, I was like, it didn't matter if I lived or died because I honestly thought that that's how I was going to die. Somehow, some way, using drugs, whether it was overdose, whether it was um, because of a car wreck or because of going on a drug grunt, whatever that might be, I thought that's, I wasn't already, ever going to get into recovery. You had already made your mind up, so you were just waiting for it to happen, basically. Yeah, the yeah. the dark, like I was saying earlier, it's so hard to see place. the light when That's you're. That's a dark place, man. Yeah, and and all these different times where you're like feeling so hopeless and everything. Did you have any sort of, I guess, encounter with something that gave you hope at all? <sighs> Looking were, back, I mean... Yeah, there were moments. There were moments where... Um, Why wasn't you able to grasp onto that, do you think? Because I think that the shame and guilt that I carried and I felt like I'd already ruined my life and that I, there wasn't any turning back from it. So this I didn't is it. think it just, that I was worthy to be to to have a different life. Because I'd done a lot of bad things, a lot of horrible things, not only to my family, you didn't but know to my community. Was. No, I, I know. I didn't know what forgiveness was. I didn't think I was worthy of it. And I, I wasn't, no, I, I didn't have any of idea of what that looked like. I think so. it's important. Go ahead, Chad. No, I was just going to say, man, you was carrying that, like Caleb articulated earlier, you was carrying that burden that was meant for God. For, mm-hmm. for the that that only the cross can carry, man. Yeah, yeah. Tell tell Chad about what you done when he was in prison, when he was had tambourine. In oh there. my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I gotta hear, dude. I gotta get some prison and stories, she, man. She won't. She don't. T- she don't tell that part. But I'm like, baby, that's a testimony right there. Like, uh, you're in prison, dang, praising Jesus with you know. Got your tambourine out. There there had to be a lot of stuff happen between the gavel hitting the 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 thing. We went from there to having a tambourine in prison, praising Jesus. I'm like, what the world happened between then and there, son? So, oh gosh, okay. When I was in elementary school, I was always in chorus, and I I loved to sing. I don't do it a lot, and I get to hear about it all the time from my husband, especially when we're hearing a sermon about using your gifts <laughs> that God's given you. She can you. say she got a beautiful voice. And I joined the band when I was in prison. <laughs> <laughs> but I was proud of that. Like, I honestly, 
I was starting to rediscover a piece of me that I had forgotten. And that I desperately wanted back. I just, I didn't know how. You know, I didn't, I didn't want to keep hurting my family. I didn't want to keep hurting the people that were praying for me. I didn't, I didn't want that anymore. Um, but I didn't know how, you know, like the people I was calling when I was in prison, they were all still using, you know, that yeah. was my family. Those were my brothers and sisters. Now today, you know, I have true brothers and sisters in Christ that I, I call my family. And that's who I surround myself. And that's where I see the light and where I truly strive to be better, you know. And it's just like my mom told me one time, she said, you know, as loyal as you say that you are, as loyal as you was to them, why can't you show that loyalty to your family or to the ones that you loved? And that. That was hard to hear, you know, because yeah. when you're using and you want to say you're 100 and you're loyal to the game and you're loyal to, to your streets. plug, you're loyal to all these different for all the wrong reasons. But it's just like when you're living in sin, when you're living in the darkness, like that, that is what you're loyal to. Oh, yeah. You're bound up in chains. You're a slave. Yeah. And so you can either go one or two ways. You can use that kind of loyalty for darkness or you can use it for the light, you know. And um, so, yeah, and I played a tambourine because I couldn't play anything else. So <laughs> That's, <laughs> that's him God. That's that him g- the fingerprints. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. hey, man. The, where God, you look back and you're like, man. Here, God showed up here, and I missed it. Here, and I missed it. How oh, many yeah. times did Moses walk past the burning bush? You know, like, and then finally he, he sees it, and his life changes. Now, how many times do we do that? You know? Absolutely. There's, there are so many times. Like I said, I, I should have been dead, and uh, I always, wherever I woke up the next day, I, I, I questioned myself, like, why am I even still here? You know, like, I, I should not be here today and and i know now you know i understand it now but at the time it didn't make any sense to me purpose meaning hope forgiveness all these things that you're missing acceptance acceptance and you found it right where did you find it i mean it's yeah it took a while i'm missing yeah i'm missing something so when you were in the 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 prison band Look, playing the tambourine. Have, have y'all heard that old song by Ralph Stanley, Angel Band? Uh-uh. No. We talking about somebody that found angels in the prison band, son. <laughs> Come on, man. Oh, my God. Sorry. For real. Sorry. Yeah. No, but how did you find God before, or were you just using your gifts? Like, were you just no, doing that? I was, that was just, I mean, I now, like, looking back, that that's, one of the ways that I started to to kind of see myself again, but no, I when I was in prison, I was talking to a lot of people that I was still using with. So when I got out, I stayed at home for like two days, and then I went right back out. Okay. And that, so then I was. That's when heroin started. When I got out of prison, everybody was doing heroin, and when I went into prison, everybody was doing pills. But so it was a completely 
huge change for me. I done heroin for about six weeks. Within that six weeks, I mean, there was, I can remember the, the first, probably the second day that I was gone for my mom's because I was on house, I was on parole. And when I was gone for my mom's, I was so high. I was like nodding off. And throughout the night, I picked up my phone when I would come conscious and I was like, here I am, I'm doing it again. I'm doing exactly what I said I didn't want to do. I'm here doing it again. And I messaged my aunt. I messaged my cousin. I messaged a couple people, everyone but my mom. I was like, don't message my mom, but I really need you right now. Please message me back. I didn't hear from them. I mean, it was like 3, 4, 5 o'clock in the morning. And by the time they got the message, the message back, I was already coherent, took off again to go on another run. So... It's about a couple months later was the last time I went to jail. Um, two days before that, I overdosed twice in one day. Oh, my gosh. I overdosed that morning, woke up in the bathtub, crying. People around me were like, please don't do this anymore. And I was crying, said I wouldn't. And I, I kid you not, later that evening, I was crying, shooting up the heroin like I was crying because I didn't want to do it but it's just that people yeah yeah people can't understand that like that most of the time when I was in active addiction I didn't want to be there anymore it wasn't fun like you were talking about I hit a point earlier you said something about like you couldn't really get high anymore like I hit a point where I wasn't getting high anymore I was just not I was staying off withdrawals that's all I was doing yeah and and at that point you are miserable like you're not getting high you're not having fun you want out but how you can't function normally if you're going through withdrawal so you do whatever you can to not feel that Mm -hmm. and then then already you're going through so much shame and guilt so Mm -hmm. you don't want to feel that either you know you've abandoned your family you've abandoned everyone that you love so you don't want to feel that either you know and Two days later, um, I was really high in jail, and the I showed up two minutes late, and the judge set my bond really high, like one hundred and sixty thousand, and I was like, okay, I'm not getting out, whatever. And um, that was the last day that I ever I ate the drugs that I had, and that was it. And it was different that time a lot of times you know I I would tell war stories or it made me feel like I was it made me feel good like I to tell these stories of crazy moments that happened in my life but um that was your whole identity that was your whole identity that was my identity that was it I did not know who I was Chad and um a really close friend of mine we'd gotten arrested together she went to drug court and uh that's who I talked to, and she was actually, she was going to meetings. She was in recovery, and she was talking to me about different things. She wasn't talking to me about drugs anymore. She was, yeah. like, talking to me about normal things, and I was like, I want that so bad. So, like, I kind of um, excluded myself from everybody else in in jail. I mean, I, I was sociable, but to an extent, you know, if 
if you if that's all you were about, I really wasn't even trying to be around you. I just I was tired. My soul was tired. Mm-hmm. You know, I was exhausted, and uh, I did not find Jesus then. It was after I got out, and uh, I, like you said, you know, you needed those first ninety days. You know, ninety meetings in ninety days. Like I needed those meetings in the beginning. Yeah, and that is honestly where I formed connection. You know, I could talk to people that I could relate to. Um, for once in my life, I felt like my mom was truly trying to understand what I was going through instead of just like getting mad at me for all the wrongs that I'd done. It was really her getting mad at herself. You know what I'm saying? Like she's she don't know how to deal with things, and so that's why she gets angry. I think you know, like. Well, I just I think I just viewed it as I didn't know how to um, how to process it. You know, like I just. Well, she had. I mean, speaking on that piece right there, I think that I can relate to that because it sounds like that your mom had a perspective shift, and I had that whole perspective shift, and the the. Uh, the the journey that Brooke and I had together mm-hmm. um, of, yeah, I used to get mad at her, too, for the things that she was doing, like fighting mad, like real mad. Yeah. I didn't ever hit her or nothing like that, but, you know, I was... You threw some stuff. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was <laughs> you know, I would... But but what I didn't realize is that, like, this this was actually... It, had, it was a disease. It had become a disease that was consuming her and bound. And when I had that perspective shift, I could look at her then and no longer get angry. Yeah. Probably like you know what I mean? And try to understand. Like yeah, you said, your mom was trying to understand. Yeah. It was a completely different ball game. Like she actually would go to, she went to a few meetings with me and I got to see a different side of her, a more understanding side, you know, and, and just for her to hear other people talk about it, I think it kind of, opened up some different um, views for her as to what I was going through and what I was struggling with. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so fast forward to when I met this guy here. Over comes. Here. <laughs> here, here comes, comes Judas now. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it was actually, it's kind of funny about <laughs> Caleb because uh, – when he got out of jail, um, and oh, I was already, I got to share that I was married at the time and got divorced <laughs> within two months. Oh yeah, that was when yeah. you you married your jail pen pal. Right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's a bright idea. Yeah, that, that was, worked out real well. Hopefully, you wanted well. to share that with everybody. Yeah, Caleb, you're welcome. <laughs> Thank that, you. That Rick. was pretty epic. <laughs> but then after I got divorced, I, I started getting more involved with the meetings and. And uh, going to groups and stuff, and yeah, just um, hanging out with the same same people, same crowd. And you started Caleb. courting Caitlin. Well, she didn't he, want anything to do with you. <laughs> well, uh, and see, he had a, he did have a light about him, and I mean, he was he was gung ho. Everything he talked about was Christ centered, same way that it is still today. But um, it was funny. He'd be making some kind of 
post and he would tag like a hundred people <laughs> in his post and and what sure enough like I would be on my phone and it'd be Caleb McCoy has tagged you and I'd be like oh, why does he tag me in now and of course it was some kind of Jesus post and at the time I was, I was like, on God, fire y'all I'm, so I'm still on fire just yeah. a different way I'd ask him like why do you keep tagging me in that oh you don't you don't want to see what I'm doing <laughs> Oh, you, you know so, what the you know what the difference in your fire is that fire in the beginning it's a big flame like you know it's just, it's all over the place right yeah. the big orange flame and, and, and now your fire is just burning white hot man yeah it's just yeah. a flame that. that you it's just you almost can't you almost you know if you if it just you just barely it's gonna burn you man it's just stop. white hot stop it well so, i went i went from like stacy was talking about jumping out at people at burger king tell them they don't need a whopper they need jesus yeah and like doing other things <laughs> that's kind of how mine went now too. it's laser focused man that. was that a jab at fat people with stacy no uh-uh, no oh, okay. no i was gonna <laughs> like it if it was <laughs> sorry Caitlin. no you're good um so I've always, talking. I've always had this. Yeah. When we first started hanging out though, he, we never went to church. I was like, what the heck, Caleb? I thought you were this big church person. And now we ain't been to church once. What's going on Stop here? Stop talking about Jesus. <laughs> Did you really? For a little bit. I was getting, I mean, it wasn't long. No, it's just a. Like a month or month so. Or so. I don't know. I mean, I, like what he was talking about. Those red flags start showing up. You stop doing what got you there. Mm-hmm. You know, forgetting that first love. And, and I, I was getting away from that. And God used her to him. call yeah, me back. I was back. like, you know, Come what's on. going on here? So we started going to church together. And my thing with church, okay, is I could remember throughout a lot of times, especially during my struggles, when I would get get out of jail, and it was a cycle, I'd get out of jail and go to my mom's because I that she'd always tell me, "This is your home. I'm never not gonna open my door to you." Um, when I wasn't there, it's because I chose not to be there because I distanced myself from my family because I was ashamed of what I was doing. I was disappointed in myself. They, I felt like they were disappointed in me. I felt like I'd let everybody down. I was carrying so much shame and guilt. So whenever I would be there she'd be like if you're gonna come to my house you got curfew you got rules and you're gonna go to church every wednesday and sunday and if it's not with me you're going with your grandma (laughs) Hmm. and they're mormons and i had to wear a skirt and it was yeah at first i was not about no skirts so it was a punishment basically (laughs) it was a punishment like it was and so first off that put me off and then just the type of church i was going to I felt a lot, just a lot of guilt. Mm -hmm. Like even sitting there, I felt like the whole place was going to catch on fire because (laughs) like I was that sinner that they were talking about. And I felt like they were looking directly at me and I felt like no matter what I'd done, even if I walked up to that altar and I hit my knees and I asked for forgiveness and asked to be saved, I still felt like I was going to go to hell for the sins that I had committed. So what was the point? You know, yeah. and and then so that drove me away. And then another thing was like I I'm the type of person like I'm a I'm a thinker. I'm a process kind of person and so like if I'm going to make a decision to do something, which is crazy cuz like I really didn't think using through, but 
Um, I just wanted to make sure that if I was going to commit to something like that, that it was because I felt it in my heart. Like that yeah. was true. I didn't want to be nudged um, on the pew by Caleb when they're doing the altar. <laughs> yeah. Elbowing me on the side like you right. need to get up there doing. in the altar and <laughs> confess your sins and get saved. <laughs> I, I did not want that. And uh so I waited and I waited and I waited until until just I mean I, and and I was being convicted. I was. I was being pulled and I just had to make sure, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I finally, it was in April, I finally rededicated my life. And since then, we've been on such a wild journey. I've, man, I re- truly feel like I've been washed, you know, like I'm white as snow mm-hmm. now. I feel like for once, that acceptance that I was trying to find and so many different things, so many different worldly things. I finally found that, you know. And I finally learned that I was worthy of for- forgiveness. I finally learned that I could forgive myself, you know. My parents, everybody else around me had already forgiven me. But I, I I found it really, really hard to forgive myself for the things oh, that I'd bet. done. Yeah. And um just experiencing that freedom, experiencing um realizing like, man, this <laughs> this man loves me no matter what I'd done, no matter through my darkness, the pain, the struggles, everything that I went through, this man still loves me i can't do that you know i don't know that i i man i don't know but i don't know what it's like to have a child either you know i hear that that's a pretty comparable it can compare yeah that unconditional love and well i i don't even know if you can't i don't i I guess it's the closest we can get as humans but I don't even think that we can comprehend the love of Christ because he is love. Yeah. He literally is love. If you can understand that, even if your mind can grasp that. How do you understand that? Yeah, it's it's really hard to grasp the fact that he is the source of it all. He is actually, he, he is. He says, I am that I am. That's the reason he described himself in that way is because we can't comprehend the, the love that he possesses he, he couldn't describe himself to us. So he simply said, I am that I am. And that's as good as I can do for you, bud. <laughs> Here's the rest <laughs> of this stuff. You know what I mean? And, you know, you said, Caitlin, it's like you finally felt that you had been washed clean. That to me was, man, Christ's blood is, is sufficient. It is sufficient for all things. It is sufficient to cover all things, the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross. Um, that's a testament to that. And I wanted, can I ask you something real quick? Yeah. That, how did you, you were talking about, you were kind of fighting against it, but you were being convicted. Was it just time under tension that brought you to rededicate your life? Or was there something, a, a shift in thinking, or did you do something or Caleb do something that you were like, okay, I'm ready. I think... I think that um, just being able to 
to take the time to start understanding like where that sin was coming from and how it was affecting me and then learning that I could be forgiven for that and learning that just what the presence of God is and feeling that in my heart and for once you know it wasn't because of a sermon where I was being told if you don't get saved today you're going to hell like it was just simply grace being told about grace Mm -hmm. being told that I was deserving of that that I was worthy enough to have that despite all this that you've done I love you Grace. Yeah. I, just, I mean, you know, despite everything that you're carrying, I love you. Yeah. The free gift. The free gift. Yeah. Um, Dude, and another thing you said, Caitlin, really reminded me of uh, something one of our other guests mentioned the other day. And you said, you know, you finally – felt like you were sufficient that that you belonged in a way and it's like that to me is that moment when you've you finally realize that like you finally come i guess to the belief the faith or the understanding that heaven a place in heaven the creator of the entire universe and and everyone in that place they know your name they know the name of caitlin mccoy if you called them up right now, they would say, yep, we know that name. She's <laughs> ours. Amen. What a feel. That surpasses all peace. I mean, I mean, it's just unbelievable. I think my soul at that time was just wanting to let go, wanting to release, you know, and where do you release that? Who do you release that to? Yeah. You know? And no it's human. like Caleb said, you know, he – picking up our cross like that's that's what he went to the cross for yeah and you know to think about like being washed clean it's just like that's just another like just to let go because you know we can we can hold on to things so tightly with a vice grip especially our past especially our shame and especially our guilt and just realizing that it's okay to let that go and it's okay to let him in your heart you know and it's it's scary I was scared I was like I don't know anything about this but I'm going to trust in it you know and then just like Caleb was talking earlier that everybody is entitled to that hope Mm -hmm. and finally coming to understanding about where do you find that hope because it's freely given to each and every single one of us. Awesome. Hey, whom the sun sets free is free indeed. That's one of my that's one of my favorites. Gosh <laughs> almighty, man. You know, my middle name is Hope. <laughs> um, that I get it from my grandma. Um and Another part of my testimony is one of the jailers, the last time I was in jail, he took me to the front and he was like, 
he read my face sheet and he was like, Caitlin Hope, more like Caitlin Hopeless. Mm. And uh, (laughs) for me, it's just. It ticked you off a little bit, too. Oh, yeah. Except it said it lit a fire under me. That's Mm -hmm. for sure. Because I wanted to prove him wrong. But at the same time, it's like, man. My testimony, I know that I have something to share with people. And and that's, where does that hope come from? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, who does that hope come from? And I find it in Jesus. And, and that's just what, that's how I'm able to be the woman that I am today. How I'm able to be the wife that I am today. The daughter that I am today. and And just finally realizing like, I've always been accepted. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And being named the daughter of the king, what else? What else could you want? Mm-hmm. That's <laughs> it. Well, guys, thank you guys so much for sharing so freely, so openly. Um, look, man, uh, there's so many things that I've taken away from just this part of the conversation uh, and especially the the that 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 whole point that we talked about earlier. As long as I don't do this or that, I'm good. I'm thinking we got to title this episode some way revolving around that because that impacts me tremendously. Uh, another part that we haven't even dug into that we'll dig into maybe a little bit tomorrow is that um, that manipulation portion. Uh, you know that was something that I saw a lot. You know in in with Brooke when we went through our our struggle together and how I think that that's something that we should also be on guard against you know just as as, as living life as everyday people is that is that manipulation thing and I'm sure you guys have some great advice revolving around how to be more healthier and healthy in that sense and then we're also going to dig into Caleb's run on the trail of tears how many miles was that uh, just under 800. Yeah. So, uh, 800 <laughs> mile run. Uh, we're going to dig into that. We're going to talk about ultra running and we're going to talk about, uh, Caleb and Caitlin's, uh, nonprofit that they just are, are just getting stood up called res hope and, um, the mission revolving around that. So yeah, that's coming at you. Uh, next we will wrap it up right here. This is the three of seven podcast. Enough said. Mm-hmm. <laughs>